843-661-0937 is our number. Welcome to Wake Up. Why did I do that? I mean, this is the first segment. Let's do this again, Freehold, because I'm thinking about something. Rev and I just had a real intense conversation. Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. <laughs> there you it's go. It's Thursday morning, September 22nd. Now, the proverbial 843-661-0937. Rev stumbles in, just so you folks know. I mean, I've been here since about five. Rev stumbles in at the last second. I mean, he just bumps into the door, make it all kind of loud. Am I wrong? I don't know that I stumbled in. Well, I mean, I yesterday, in. yesterday, big thud in the room. Freehold, did you hear? <laughs> uh, boom. I mean, like, what the hell's that? I announced uh, my arrival. So it's Rev arriving at the last second. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. Computer in hand, wires hanging everywhere, my, wrapped around my ankle and all this. But anyway, he comes in. Um, <laughs> am I wrong? No. Okay. I, mean, I, I did. Well, I don't know if I stumbled in. Can, can, I, I, don't, I, mean, I don't want to interrupt you on your, on your um, whatever it is you're doing on your phone. But, I'm no, sorry. I'm, I'm pulling together the information. You're probably going to ask me, like, <laughs> when do the Braves play? The <laughs> I, don't, I don't care. The Braves play today and the Vets don't. I yeah, know that. Yeah, exactly. And the Braves blew one yesterday. Yeah, they did. You can't lose to one of the worst teams in baseball in the last two weeks of the season when it's tied for a pennant. I mean, you just can't right, do that. Right. you got to beat the bad teams every time you play the bad teams. Um, I get it. I mean, you know, the good teams win 66% of the time. The bad teams win 33% of the time. The Braves beat the Nationals two or three. So they did exactly what you would expect them to do in the law of averages. But this is the last two weeks of a, a pennant chase, and you can't lose to the bad teams. You just can't. The Mets won the last three games. They lost yesterday, but the Mets still won the last three games. Why did the Mets win the last three games? Because the Mets and Braves are exactly where they were when the Braves began a series with the Nationals at home, a bad, bad baseball team, and the Mets began a series in Milwaukee with a pretty good, decent team. Uh, I always use 500 as a scale. Um, free hole. The Phillies and Braves play today. The Braves are nearly forty games over five hundred. The Phillies are what ten or twelve games over five hundred? Uh, eighteen. Okay, eighteen games over five hundred. Pretty good baseball team. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the 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 Brewers were I think ten or eleven games over five hundred. Pretty good baseball team. Um, not not a great team, and I don't think Freehold's arguing that the Phillies are a great team. They're not as good as the Mets or Braves. Uh, the record indicates that, but they're a good enough team to get you. The Nationals aren't a good enough team to get you. They can get you in June, but they can't get you when they you're got in us a yesterday. Well, but, but five runs in two games against one of the worst teams in baseball. Yep. That there's something about this team right now that isn't clicking on all eight cylinders. I mean, you would agree with me. Yeah. They just don't look like yeah. they did a month ago. I mean, they're they're winning, but they're struggling against but teams. Their hitters they aren't hitting. That they're Olsen, just not. Riley. I mean, and when those two guys don't hit. You've got issues. I mean, they're the RBI guys in the middle of the lineup, and when they struggle, the team's going to struggle to, to score runs. And when you don't score runs, guess what? You struggle to win baseball games. So five runs in two games against the second or third worst team in all of baseball, you just can't you can't close the deal when that's happening. And they've also got some bad report on um, Strider. He's going to miss a start because he's got a strained oblique. Here's the problem with Strider. You ready? You want to get inside baseball for a second? Mm-hmm. No pun intended. Um, Strider's not a real big guy, but he throws 100. And it's hard to throw 100 and not be a big, imposing, intimidating sort of guy game after game after game after game. Um, you can do it as a relief pitcher because you got to gas it for about an inning, maybe an inning and a third on a given night. So you can, I mean, you can be a smallish guy and throw it 100 uh, if you're only throwing it at one, you know, let's say seven inning, five innings a week, 
I mean, a relief pitcher would pitch five innings a week, so save opportunities. So if Strider's 5'11", 195 pounds and throwing 100, and he's doing it five innings a week, that's one thing. But you're asking him to do it two starts a week. And that's just asking a lot out of a guy who's not 6'5", 225 or 30 pounds, and doesn't have all that, you know, the, I don't know, Rev, the, um, the body mass to generate that sort of arm speed. And I worry and he about start it. the season as a reliever, right? Yeah and, yeah. and I worry about him I mean, because once again, he's lights out. He's the best pitcher the Braves have right now, yeah. including Max Freed. Yep. I mean, he is a dominant starter. I mean, he can, and he's Clemson Tiger. Um, <laughs> it's kind of interesting, you know, how much you forget he's a Tiger when he becomes a Brave. Yeah. If you're a Braves fan, I don't care if he's a Tiger or not. He's Get him a out, brave. man. That's yeah, he's counts. a Brave. Get him out. Get him out. Um, I've always respected that about the uh, NFL. You know, the, the guy that came from Clemson and came from South Carolina. They're all of a sudden rooming together on the road because it's not orange and garnet anymore, baby. It's Dore me. That's right. You know, it's green. Uh, yeah. Well, how much are you getting paid? How much am I getting paid? When is our next deal around the corner? How do we win a world championship? Forget those days in Death Valley of williams Bryce. I'm not interested in that anymore. It's all about the Dore me. Um, so, so watching Strider pitch this year concerned me because it's like, he throws it. I mean, he throws it a hundred miles an hour, and he's just not that big a guy. And when those guys start having, you know, discomfort, I mean, that's always the way it starts. He's got some discomfort in his oblique. He's, he's got some. Um, it's not a big deal, but he's going to miss a start or two. And uh, and he's young to be having those sorts of issues. You'd expect Scherzer at thirty five or six years old to start breaking down a little bit. But the way it may work out is that uh, that Strider and Freed will be available to pinch against the Mets next week. I understand that, but my point is longevity of career. Sure. You know, I mean, he's a dominant guy. I mean, he is. Are the Braves willing to consider putting him in the bullpen and letting him be the starter for the next decade? I mean, excuse me, the reliever, the closer for the next decade? Because he's got electric stuff. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. Um, I've watched a lot of major league hitters this year kind of look out there going like, you're not that big, man. I mean, you're not big enough to throw it as hard as you are. And I think that's I think there's some beauty in that as far as a pitcher. When when Strider's on the mat, I mean when Randy Johnson's out there, you expect a hundred. When Doc Holliday was out there, I mean he's a big strong guy. You look at him as a man, I bet he throws at hundred miles an hour. When Strider's out there, you're like, that's probably an all speed junk thrower. You know what I mean? He's gonna try to trick me. And all of a sudden it comes out of his head like a laser beam and it's a hundred miles. He's just got a live arm. Just got a real, real live arm. But but I do wonder if the Braves would be better off putting him in the pen. And just let it, hey, man, we're going to sign you to be our starter, excuse me, to be our closer for the next decade. And um, and you got to throw it 100, but you only got to throw it, you know, four nights a week, one inning a night. I just think his career longevity could last a lot longer. Now, he may have the best fundamentals in the game. I mean, he, he may have the best um, genetics in the game. I mean, I, I may be completely and totally off base. I've just not seen a lot of guys 5'11", 185, throw it 100 and last a long, long, long time in a major league career. Um, they know much better than I. But the Braves play today. The Phillies do not. And here's where we are. They're tied in the loss column. Why does that matter? Because if you're behind in the loss column, you don't control your own fate. You just don't. I mean, there's nothing you can do about what the Mets do. But when you're tied in the loss column, you have an opportunity to go win the game. If you win the game, you go from one game out to one half game out. So that's why I've always paid attention to I've said it several times. How many times where are they in the loss column? How many behind are they in the in the loss column? So the Braves have a chance today to pick up a half game on the Mets or lose a half game on the Mets, but we don't wake up tomorrow. What real? They're playing us. Yeah, playing the Phillies tonight. Oh, I thought you just said the Phillies were off. No, the Phillies and Braves are playing tonight. The Mets, the Mets are off. 
So the, the, the Braves are playing, what is it? Is it a four-game series against Phillies, I think? Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, if I'm not mistaken. And the Mets are playing a three-game series, maybe in Oakland, if I'm not mistaken. I think they make a, a quick road trip out west to um to visit Oakland. So, I mean, you, this weekend's big. I mean, this weekend, it'll be a, it'll be, um, we'll wait. We'll be on the air tomorrow. The Braves will not be one game out. They will either be one half game out or a game and a half out. 843-661-0937 is our number. I want to be careful here, but but I'm not going to be but so careful. Um, we had it ready to play yesterday, and we didn't. The um, I don't know how many of you saw Don Lemon um, speak with some royal historian. I mean, some historian of the, the royal family and royalty in Great Britain. And it's it's pretty interesting when someone like Lemon – um, I mean, it's obvious he's not the deepest guy in the world. I mean, it really is. I mean, he's somewhat of a, um, I mean, I would imagine, well, I should be careful, but I'm not. Uh, we know that in society, there's certain quotas, certain diversity requirements that certain networks believe they have to abide by, whether someone's talented or not. And Lemon, I think, has been a uh, beneficiary of diversity and um, quotas and some other things because he's just not a deep thinker. I mean, he's not a guy that leads you to believe he's researched the issue. He understands the issue, has a grasp of the issue, but but very, very seldom does someone just go after the host in a way that this guest did. And um, in the next segment, I kind of want to play that. I've actually done this since that. I mean, somebody sent me that a couple of days ago. I'd already seen it. It might have been Monday when somebody sent me a recording of um, the day it happened. It was either Monday or Tuesday, probably Monday. When it happened, and um, and I started reading a lot. I'd read a little bit about this, and I understood to some degree, uh, you know, the um, the ancient slave trade around the world. I mean, I, I wrote down some notes this morning. Uh, the, the the Barbary slave trade on the north, uh, the coast of North Africa. You've got the Slavic slave trade. I've heard Bill Maher talk about the Slavic slave trade, um, the the Arabic slave trade, the U.S. transit, excuse me, the transatlantic slave trade, but. It's just interesting how judgmental people are today about, you know, what they would have done, what they wouldn't have done, what the world was like. You know, man, there's no way I would have ever owned a slave. The only people that didn't own slaves in ancient days or even the medieval times that I mean, the, the, um, the, the Arabic slave trade was about 1300 years. 25, 30 million people. Ain't a white man involved in that. I mean, some of the African kings and, and lords and some of the, uh, I don't know, Rev, the, uh, I don't know how the hierarchy of the Islamic faith works, but it, I mean, the, the majority of that um, uh, Arabic slave trade was, I mean, didn't include a single white person. I mean, there was nobody buying or selling in the, um, in the Caucasian world when it came to Arabic slave trade. But, um, the Slavic slave trade was probably the most unique in that it did include all white people. I mean, it was what you and I would consider today. I don't know what they called themselves back then. I don't think it was Caucasian. But but in, in the Slavic slave trade, and some would argue that the word slave comes as a result of the Slavic slave trade. I can't find that out to be true for sure. I mean, there's some uh, scholars that, that have um, dedicated some, I don't know, uh, training and, and career path toward trying to better understand the slave trade in um 
the, the Slavic slave trade, Bill Maher says that, uh, now Maher's like me. I mean, he knows enough to be dangerous. Uh, he's sm- a lot smarter than I am, far more liberal than I am. But Maher made a mention, and, and what I want to talk about is the Project 1619. The insanity of that, the inaccuracy of that. I mean, we're acting as if slave, uh, slavery centered began and, you know, the pinnacle of slave trading in, in the world was 1619, the founding of America. Um, you know how many slaves made their way to America? I mean, we're talking about 100 million slaves, 100 million-ish slaves in about 13 or 1,500 years, and about 300,000 made their way to North America. Uh, most people believe about 250 or 60,000 of the 300,000 made their way to the United States. So, so as it relates to it, I'm not defending slavery. Please understand, I'm not. What the point I'm trying to make is, I always do. It's a lot more complex than a soundbite. I mean, it's far more misunderstood than we should have ever ever allowed it to be uh, portrayed as. But all, but all of a sudden, there, there's a there's a generation of Americans that believe slavery was unique to America, and this Project 1619, uh, you know, the real founding of America, the real beginning of America, rooted in slavery and racism, is what this the whole world, the entire world. You know who owned slaves? Anybody that could. The only reason you didn't have a slave is you could afford one. I mean, everybody in the world, by and large, who could own a slave did. The ones that couldn't didn't, and the majority, a lot of the ones that couldn't were basically trapped in the slave trade. I mean, they became a slave. There's castration. There's mutilation. I mean, there are a lot of uh, horrific episodes of slavery, not in American history, but in world history. And, and what the lady tries to argue with Don Lemon, there's only a few countries in the world that have accepted responsibility of being a part of something they never should have been a part of and agreed to ah, defend human rights, to basically say slavery is not right. You know, Dr. Bolt and I talked a little bit about this, and this is kind of what led me down the road when Bolt was here Tuesday, and I asked him a question, you know, we all have certain periods of history we're more interested in than others. For me personally, it's the founding because I'm such a um, ah, a fan of Thomas Jefferson. And I, I think Jefferson probably had more to do with the America I live in today than any founding father or any other American in history. I mean, obviously, different people in politics and business and culture and, and faith have made contributions. But I still believe that the experiment that I'm a part of has Jefferson's fingerprints on it more than any single person. I didn't say Jefferson's done more by himself than everybody else together. I would never insinuate that. But if you took a a top 25 of people who have contributed to the American experiment, I think Jefferson probably has as much to do with the idea and notion of who we are, what we stand for, what we believe in. But but Dr. Bolt basically said post-Jeffersonian Hamiltonian, which kind of culminated with Jackson. I mean, Jackson would have been a Jeffersonian, and uh, you know, nobody picked up the banner of Hamiltonians except some of the former Jeffersonians. You know, they said this is pretty easy. Um, being a Jeffersonian's hard. I mean, it means states' <laughs> rights, and you got to live within your means, and all these other. I, I kind of like being a Hamiltonian better. I like the idea of the central planner and uh, you know, global commerce and all these other things that have carried the day. I mean, they've won out, no question about it. But but America's founding. You've got got the original colonies and the original colonists. And then you've got the American Revolution, and then you've got the formation of a nation. You've got a, a period of time that Jefferson and Hamilton's ideas and principles were the great debate. And, and most of us know a little bit about the, Hammer, you know, the Hamiltonian-Jeffersonian era in American politics. And then you get to the Civil War. Well, what happened 
from Jackson to the Civil War. And Dr. Bolt said it was all about slavery. I mean, every political hot button, every political issue we dealt with was about slavery. Um, some addressed it more aggressively than others. Some took stances that, you know, if in today's enlightened woke world, they probably wish they hadn't taken. But it was a complex debate. And I just think it's very interesting how we, the people, perceive this debate to be so simple. You know, America was the black stain on the world. I mean, it was the um, it was the nation that built its economy on slave labor, and it was the only nation that built its economy on slave labor. It became a superpower, and its superpower status is ill-founded because it didn't gain that status legitimately. It was illegitimate. And I just want for clarity's sake, and, and we'll play this bit after we get back, but, but I want you to understand that the only people that didn't own a slave for about 2,000 years in this country, or excuse me, in this world, were those who couldn't. And, and you can, I mean, I've, I've got a lot of numbers here. Um, the, the Barbary slave trade, the Slavic slave trade, somewhere between 4 and 10 million. I mean, nobody knows exactly. There were some record keeping, but somewhere between 4 and 10 million. The Arabic slave trade, over 20 million people were um, in bondage, in slavery, enslaved uh, for 1,300 years. The Slavic slave trade, once again, was all about white folk. I mean, it was white people selling white people. Um, the, the majority of the, uh, the the Islamic slave, excuse me, the Arabic slave trade was a deal between some of the Russians, excuse me, the African gods and lords and the Islamic leadership. And it was, the, I mean, it was longer and included more slaves than any slave trade in history. And then you've got, there's no question, the USA participated in what eventually became America, participated in the, in the transatlantic slave trade, but, but the number of slaves who made their way to America appears to be somewhere between 250 and 300,000 people. So in a world that totaled about 100 million slaves, America had far less than 1%. In fact, probably a little less than one half of 1%. But because nobody knows, I mean, what a lot of good bookkeeping back then. But, but most scholarly estimates say somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 million people in, 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 in global trade for roughly 2,000 years, there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 million people who were slaves. America had about 250 to 300,000 of that 200 million. And I mean, it was Islamic. It was African. It was, uh, it was uh, white folk so to speak, in some of the Slavic slave trades. Uh, the Barbary coast of North Africa was one of the uh, hotbeds of slavery. And I think when I hear Don Lemon, you know, talk about reparations, Don Lemon's heard that somebody said something about reparations. He knows nothing of what he's talking about. He knows far less than I do. And the reason I know a little bit is I've tried to dedicate a percentage of my acumen in time to better understand something as controversial as slavery. So you've heard me say many, many times that the Confederacy is misunderstood. I'm not defending everything about the Confederacy. I never would. But it's incredibly misunderstood. It's a lot more complex than the public has led you to believe it is. Some of the uh, opinion leaders and pundits and talking, talking heads, same with slavery. And I think Don Lemon comes off as a buffoon when he tries to engage in a debate about something he knows so little about, not because he lacks the, uh, the aptitude. I'm sure he's smart enough to, to understand it if he were to give himself enough time. But Don Lemon's made his mind up. It's good enough. If liberal America says it's all about 1619, that's good enough for me. That's kind of the company line. And I get paid not to investigate the truth, not pursue the matter of facts, 
but rather to fan the flames of, of whatever sensational story there is out there. And it's just so much deeper. And here's a lady from Great Britain who is schooled in royal matters. <laughs> and, and I don't care much for that either. But I am a big fan of this lady when she takes on the takes Don Lemon to task. I want to play that on the other side of our first break. Back in a minute. 843 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Here's Dale in Florence. Good morning, Dale. Morning, guys. So slavery has been around an extremely long time. Uh, you can read in the Bible, the God, God told us how, how uh, owners were to act towards slaves and slaves towards owners. Uh, Europeans were not the first people in North America to hold slaves. Uh, Native Americans enslaved each other when they conquered, when, when they warred against each other. But as far as I know, the United States of America is the only country on the planet where white people, a lot of white people, fought and died to free African slaves. Why don't we talk about that? White people fought and died to free African slaves. Haven't heard that mentioned before. You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate it. I can't find any evidence of a world that existed without slavery. I mean, Dale just mentioned the Bible, uh, the Barbary slave trade, the Arabic slave trade. Uh, some of these trades obviously date the birth of Christ. Now, now the world was around before Christ became, you know, the um, the central figure in a prominent faith around the globe, but I can't find any evidence at all. Now, I wasn't there. But it seems to me the world has never existed without people owning other people. The point, I, and I'm not defending what America did. I'm not defending the transatlantic slave trade. I mean, I, I would never try to defend that. I'm on the record that no human being has a right to own another human being, but we were not outliers by any stretch of the imagination. And Rev, when you look at the... um. I mean, if you look at the history of, of the world and you say what nations have done the most to address slavery, America would be in the top 1%. I mean, it really would. Now, now the national narrative, the global narrative, and the accepted narrative by liberal America, academia, media, intelligentsia, is that we should be ashamed of ourselves as to how we participated in such a, uh, a lucrative yet inhumane business. Because it was the business of slave trading. Once again, I mean, you, you can go online. You can Google Barbary slave trade. There's 100 articles. You can Google Slavic slave trade. There's 100 articles. Um, Arabic slave trade. Once again, 1,300 years. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 million, 20 to 25 million people were involved in slave trade. And if you go all the way to the, back to the beginning of slave trade, it's, I mean, it's some of the African gods. Some of, this, some of the African, what we'd call lords, and, and uh, I mean, they, they would be the big shots. They would be the haves in, in some of these African countries. And, um, and, and once again, is the, is the Barbary slave trade worse than the Slavic slave trade, worse than the, the Arabic slave trade, worse than the transatlantic slave trade? All slavery's bad. I mean, once again, a man owning another man, a woman owning another woman simply because of their socioeconomic status. I mean, that's horrific and horrendous. But, but once again, if you look at the world and slavery in its totality, America is probably, no, America is absolutely in the 1% of countries who have most addressed what they perceive to be a, um, a grave error in judgment, a great mistake the nation made as a whole, and they've tried to address it as Great Britain did. 
I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, The Brits probably deserve at least as much credit as America did because they figured out a way for 600,000 of the countrymen not to die. I mean, Great Britain abolished slavery and didn't have a war between itself. I mean, it took us having a war between itself, but we did. And the Emancipation Proclamation followed. And, you know, rights were restored, and we did an even better job at civil rights in 1964. So to argue that America is one of the... um, one of the dominant nations in the negativity of slavery. No, America is probably one of the best examples of how to address a, a, a concern or ill or mistake you've made over the long haul. Let's go to the phone. Here is Rick in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Rick. Hey, good morning. Hey, Rick. Um, just like, you know, you were doing a little history there and wondering if I couldn't interject a couple of things. One, you're right about slavery has always existed. But here in America, we did kind of redefine it a little bit. In most countries, you were a slave because you were a POW, criminal, in debt or something. But your wife was free. Your children were free. Here in America, we kind of invented the generational thing. And that kind of took it to a new level, don't you think? But I don't think we invented that. You're right. The majority of slavery, I mean, it was a political, excuse me, it was a criminal punishment to some degree. But 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 I just when I read about the Slavic slave trade, I've not read as much about the um the, the Arabic slave trade. I read a good bit about the um the Barbary slave trade, the Slavic slave trade. It seems to me there were a lot of similarities there, Rick, about what we did. And okay. I'm not defending. You've listened long enough. I would never defend that. I'm not trying to defend that. What I'm trying to do is paint it in a historical context, and I think that is an absolute fair debate to have, but we've never had that debate, Rick. America has been portrayed as as guilty. You know, it was the one country in the world that gained its superpower status on the backs of slave labor, and and maybe there's some truth to that, and I think that's a fair debate to have, but, but everybody that could own a slave prior to America becoming in existence owned a slave. Okay, and just one other thing I wanted, it's teaching history the emancipation proclamation was pretty much of a pr stunt it freed nobody um it didn't touch the slaves in maryland at delaware or any of the border states that were still with the union it only freed the slaves that the union army did not control and you know slavery didn't end until the 13th amendment yeah all my kids come in from middle school oh the emancipation proclamation ended slavery when it actually freed zero. Let me ask you this, Rick. You know better than I. Was Lincoln truly an abolitionist? He was a philosophical abolitionist. They started the Republican Party based on, the, you know, out of the Free Soil Party. Correct. He is also quoted, if I could restore the Union by freeing all the slaves, I would. If I could restore the Union by freeing none of the slaves, I would. So he was, in a lot of ways, a pragmatist. And I think that's his legacy. Do you agree with that? A political pragmatist at a moment in time making a very pragmatic decision. I I absolutely do agree with that. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate it. Always love to hear from history professors and guys. And look, I'm not suggesting that I know everything there is to know about, you know, some of the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, the the, the Barbary slave. I mean, I'm not suggesting for a second that because I did some reading you know, in the last four or five days, I'm up to speed on everything there is to know and suggest. But Dr. Bolt kind of reminded me, it, it didn't jar me, but when Bolt said, Ken, everything post-Jackson, pre-Civil War, was about slavery. 
how to deal with slavery. How many nations in the world have spent, you know, 30 or 40 years addressing or understanding how to deal with slavery? Now, everybody was not opposed to slavery. I'm not suggesting that for a second. There are people in America today that don't have any problem with slavery. They won't admit it publicly, but there's some in America today that believe people are inferior to other people and, you know, it, slavery is probably okay in the long run. I'm not one of those. I would never, ever even attempt to go down that road. But but, but I just think we have to have a debate. And, and when Dr. Bolt begins his dissertation and then we hear Don Lemon, let's do this real quick. Let's play that bit from CNN. Don Lemon is interviewing, what's the lady's name? Uh, she's one of the royal historians, and she basically takes him to task for an assumption he makes. Now, the reason Lemon makes this assumption, he's never sat in Rick's uh, history class and really tried to pay attention. Or maybe he got an academic understanding, of, and I'm talking about higher education, college. I mean, maybe when you get to college, they do tell you the theory of 1619, the notion of 1619. And, um, but, but let's go there real quick, and I, I think you'll, you'll understand why we're having this conversation. Well, this is coming when, you know, there's all of this wealth and you hear about it comes as England is facing rising costs of living, a living crisis, austerity budget cuts and so on. And then you have the, those who are asking uh, for reparations for colonialism and they're wondering, you know, $100 billion, $24 billion here and there, $500 million there. Some people want to be paid back and, uh, and members of the public are wondering why are we suffering when you are you know, you have all of this vast wealth. Those are legitimate concerns. Well, I think you're right about reparations in terms of if people want it, though, what they need to do is you always need to go back to the beginning of a supply chain. Where was the beginning of the supply chain? That was in Africa. And when across the entire world, when the slavery was taking place, which was the first nation in the world that abolished sla uh, slavery? The first nation in the world to abolish it. It was started by William Wilberforce, was the British. In, in Great Britain, they abolished slavery. 2,000 naval men died on the high seas trying to stop slavery. Why? Because the African kings were rounding up their own people. They had them on cages waiting in the beaches. No one was running into Africa to get them. And I think you're totally right. If reparations need to be paid, we need to go right back to the beginning of that supply chain and say, who was rounding up their own people and having them handcuffed in cages? Absolutely. That's where they should start. And maybe, I don't know, the descendants of those families where they died at the, in the high seas trying to stop the slavery, that those families should receive something too, I think, at the same time. It's an interesting discussion, Hillary. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We'll continue to, to discuss in the future. Well, I mean, you, I, mean I wish you could see the look on Lemon's oh, yeah. face. I mean, here, here I mean, <laughs> there, I mean it, but, that's that's the story. I mean, and and you wonder this. I mean, I honestly wonder: Has Lemon ever heard that? I mean, has Don Lemon so isolated himself and insulated himself from the real world and real accurate historical accounts that he's just kind of lived in that cocoon, lived in that bubble? Um, it sounds that way. And and you know, you can I can hear someone again. There's no way that guy doesn't know that story. I don't know. I mean, I think there's a pretty good chance that he's never heard that side of the argument. That slave trade, by and large, began uh, on the coast of North Africa. I mean, the, the Barbary slave trade. I mean, by and large, it was Africans selling Africans. Uh, you know, and then you got some of the Slavic slave trade, and that's more of a white selling white. And and the point I'm trying to make, guys, and I'm not trying to, you can get in trouble going down this road. I mean, you can really get, get yourself in a box that it's hard to get out of. The, the point I want to make is Don Lemon tried to represent slavery as an issue that most people believe it to be. It's those damn Americans, those Westerners, 
those 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 um white plantation owners in the good old U.S. of A. prior to the revolution revolutionary war and post revolutionary war that built the nation's strongest economy on the back of slave labor. Well, there's some truth there. There's no doubt about it. I mean, when I refer to NCAA football as the last plantation model, I mean, you know, I do that a little bit tongue in cheek, but but I do it to provoke. I do it to sensationalize some of the argument. But, but there, there, you know, something like slavery is far more complicated than what the media has tried to break it down to be and what academia has tried to lead you to believe. That's the point I'm trying to make. And, uh, and I appreciate Rick calling in, a historian, someone who does understand from a historical context the nature of slavery. I don't know all there is to know about the Barbary slave trade. I don't know all there is to know about the transatlantic slave trade, nor the um, Arabic slave trade. But, but I know it's much more than Don Lemon thinks it is. And I know it's much deeper than Don Lemon's tried to portray it as. And, and these are the complex issues that America's dealt with and, and continues to deal with. But young people need to understand that the nation you grow up in and love, the nation you are a citizen of, is not all about slavery. I mean, it does have a stain on its past. There's no question about it. But it was part and parcel to a world that normalized human beings owning other human beings. Once again, somewhere in the neighborhood, and Rick could take me to task on this number, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 million people were enslaved. America had around 300,000. So less than one half of 1% of all slave ownership in the world was in America. And, and we should be convicted. I mean, we should try and do better moving forward. But, but let's get the past right. The only way to move forward in a positive and accurate way is to make sure we understand the past. And the past has been terribly misrepresented by academia and the mainstream media. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Kind of an interesting stat I read a couple of days ago. There were more millionaires being created in Mississippi than there were London per capita. I mean, cotton was, I mean, I think uh, the, the, the American South produced 75% of the cotton consumed around the world. So there were, I mean, it was free labor. I mean, there's no doubt about that, that, you know, a lot of the Southerners were defending slavery in the name of um, remaining prosperous. So to suggest that, you know, that this was not about, I mean, this was an economic matter. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And once again, 75% of the cotton consumed in the world or utilized in the world was from the American South. There were more millionaires being created in Mississippi per capita than in London. And London was kind of the financial hub. Uh, but it would have been, you know, Washington, New York slash. I mean, London's still a financial hub. But in that day, it would have been the financial hub of global financial transactions. More millionaires in Mississippi per capita than in London. I mean, it wasn't because they were smart business guys. They just had free labor. So, so slavery is, I mean, it's a complicated issue. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. Hey, uh, I'm, I don't have a degree in history, but uh, I have uh, read on this subject and researched it a little bit. Uh, there are two schools of slavery, uh, the Greek school and the uh, Asiatic or Chinese school. In the Greek uh, school of slavery, uh, the children are, are born free, but in the uh, Asiatic school of slavery, you, uh, uh, the children are not born free, and it's perpetual, generational. It follows the people forever. But uh, the uh, Indian Ocean was a huge trade. That was uh, 
bigger than the Atlantic trade. Uh, Africans being exported uh, from the interior to uh, Asiatic countries and uh, Arab countries also. But uh, I think the Arabs pretty much controlled the trade there for many years. But uh, that was just one part of it. But I'm I'm wondering if I'll get reparations because I have a, a direct ancestor that won the Medal of Honor uh, fighting for the North. But it was taken away from him because uh, he was a Southerner and wasn't actually in the Army. He was a contractor, and he kept, captured a battle flag and a, Yankee, and, a, and a North Carolina general by the name of Behringer and uh, got the Medal of Honor for that. I wonder if uh, I would get reparations because they fought so valiantly on the, on the side of the North. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. The point that, that I think we need to consider is, I mean, I think America has morally dealt with slavery. I think it is legally dealt with slavery. I think it is socially dealt with slavery. I think it's easy to be hypocritical here. If you're wearing a, a pair of Nike shoes today, if you're watching a Disney movie today, are you embracing or endorsing, you know, indentured servitude? I mean, think about it for a second. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're wearing a pair of Nike shoes today, they were more likely than not made in a Chinese sweatshop. That's some version or iteration of slavery. I mean, it's not exactly what America had. It's not exactly what the Islamics had. It's not exactly what the, the Barbary slave trade. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's unique, but it still isn't it kind of sort of the same thing. If a 15-year-old has been forced to work in a factory to make your tennis shoes for a dollar a day. I mean, how do you say you oppose slavery but yet you buy a pair of Nike tennis shoes made by a 13-year-old in a sweatshop in China. Hypocrisy. We're all guilty of it. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone held on during that segment. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. I, I love it when Rick calls in. I wish he'd call in more. Because he is a a great historian, but people don't realize when when we founded the country, they tried to do away with slavery right away, and they couldn't do it. So they they passed an act that went into effect uh, January first, two thousand or eighteen oh eight, that stopped the Atlantic uh, slave trade. So no more slaves could be brought into the United States. And I think history is not very kind to Native Americans. And that's why I'd rather Rick call in and tell me about history. I like Dr. Bolt, but he's a big Andrew Jackson guy. But during Jackson's presidency, he signed the Indian Removal Act, which ended up destroying all the treaties between the Native Americans that lived in North Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, and they sent them, you know, on the Trail of Tears, and that's not talked about very much. In fact, Jackson's the one that started the Democrat Party. That that act actually only passed with like two or three votes in the House over the majority. So 
the Whigs didn't like it at all, and the Democrats loved it. So I, I like it when Rick calls in because he's a true historian that, that tells it like it is no matter what it is. And that's the only way you learn from the past is to study it so you don't uh, follow that path again. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, Rick's got a historian's take. Dr. Bolt has a historian's take. I don't have a historian's take, but I'm intellectually curious. I didn't say intellectually sound. I said intellectually curious. Rev and I were talking during the break. Bill Maher is every bit as liberal as Don Lemon is. But Maher has always demonstrated the ability to be intellectually curious, to try and explore. I mean, he's still a five-star liberal. He's still, as far as I'm concerned, someone who doesn't need to be near the levers of government. But he's a smart guy, and he dedicates a certain percentage of his time to try and understand what these things we're talking about are in context. Lemon simply does not. Lemon's not by himself. Lemon's far more in the majority of mainstream media. They have an education that they're credentialed, but they have very little curiosity about why people believe what they believe and how that compares or contrasts to the true um, articulation of history. Marr accepts that this country's um, relationship with race and slavery is much more complex than what the squad says or what CNN says. So I'll give Marr a little credit. Riff says, yeah, but he's still, but he is. He's a five-star liberal. I mean, he's a guy who believes in, in liberal causes and liberal policy and a more liberal America, but he's not a moron. And the reason I know he's not a moron is because he always tries to uh, position his argument. I mean, he's highly critical of the liberals today. I mean, he says, I mean, if we're going to win elections, we can't ever say when a man gets pregnant. I mean, I've heard Moore say this multiple times. You freak people out, man. When you, I mean, I'm with you. You're a liberal. You believe in big government. I'm a liberal. I believe in big government. But I don't believe a man can get pregnant, nor should you. So he splits ways with, with some of his liberal um, associates when it gets to the, the, the absolute nutty things of society. And I do believe this, Reb. I think it's as nutty to blame America for global slave trading as it is to say a man can get pregnant. I mean, those are ridiculous things to say. But Don Lemon has been conditioned to believe that. Not because he's a black guy, but he's a liberal member of the media. It doesn't matter to me if he's a black guy or not. I mean, he's not a serious thinker. And, and I don't say that because he's an African-American. I don't say because he's a woman or, a, you know, he went to Hannah Pamplico High School. It doesn't matter to me any of that. When you say things that, that don't deserve to be taken seriously, and a certain percentage of America does take them seriously— that, that's when you deserve to be scrutinized. I didn't say attacked, but, but scrutinized. What's funny to me is when the left attacks Marr because he says some of these things. You know, He's always obviously been on their side, especially against Trump over the years. But now, you know, when he says something like that, they go after it. Well, here's the concern I have, that people on the left will start believing and listening to Bill Marr. If people right. on the left start listening to Marr, this struggle is going to be harder than it than it needs to be. Yeah. I mean, if you keep allowing political leadership on the left or the liberal side to say men can get pregnant and the only slavery ever is American slavery, some of the transatlantic slave trade, then but 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 Mars one of these guys who says, Look, man, I am a liberal. I believe in big government. I want government to basically um create equality in society, socioeconomically, culturally, whatever. 
That, that's the notion of liberalism as far as I'm concerned. The, the, the belief in a central planner, the belief in a big government, that, that the government can better allocate capital, allocate responsibilities, allocate power and influence. I don't buy that for a second. But to me, that's a fundamental philosophical difference in, in Marr and me. I don't think Marr's a moron. I think Don Lemon is. I think Bill Maher is genuinely a, an incredibly smart man who understands the issues and takes exception with his side when they articulate issues in a way that he believes not not stops them from, here's Maher's objective. Maher wants to win so we can have a bigger and more intrusive government. I mean, at the core of his liberal philosophy is government. I mean, you know, government has to do these things because the private sector can't. It's not to be trusted. Uh, it doesn't settle scores the way scores need to be settled. That's kind of the philosophy of Bill Maher. Because once again, he is a liberal. He borders on socialists when it comes to political policy and, and theology, or excuse me, ideology. But, but he senses the, the concern that most people have. In other words, he thinks when you say a man can get pregnant— you're, you're doing the liberal cause a disservice. You're making it harder for liberals to win an election. When Lemon, I mean, I don't know if you saw this or not, but the look on Lemon's face after this lady, and it's almost like she's licking her chops, like, okay, I mean, if this guy wants to really go down that road, then let's go down that road. And she basically says, I'm for reparations. Don, you and I agree. I mean, that's absolutely, let, let's absolutely pursue reparations, and let's go back to the beginning of the supply chain. Let's sue the African gods or excuse me, the African lords, the, the African, um, you know, elitist. Let, let's go to those who, I mean, the, the Africans who enslaved other Africans. I mean, that, that is kind of the historical beginning of slave trade. Let's go there. Let's go to the beginning of the supply chain. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. Uh, so, yeah, Bill, Bill Maher, I don't think Bill Maher is of high intelligence. I think Bill Maher is of average intelligence, and that's why, he remains intellectually curious because he's aware of the fact that he doesn't know everything. Really, really intelligent people convince themselves early on that, that they have the faculties within them to come to conclusions without the facts. So, you know, I, I, I thank God for people of average intelligence because they have to go look things up. They can't just reason it all out in their mind. Um, I've often said some things are so stupid, only college professors could come up with them. But uh, <laughs> in terms of, of slavery, I, I hate talking about slavery. And what I've learned is that what you can't do is you can't say, well, you know, yeah, I murdered three people, but hey, that guy over there, he murdered five. So, you know, get off my back. Uh, we got to quit with the, well, you know, other people held slaves. So, you know, in our relative position in horrible histories, we're not as bad as somebody. Uh, that, that's a cop-out. But you and I, we never owned slaves. We never endorsed slavery. We never fought for it. We never voted for it. We never backed a candidate who wanted it. We, we have nothing to do with it. Uh, very few people are products of slave-owning uh, families and genealogies and lineage. Very few people are of slave-held lineage and genealogy in the United States. We're talking about a very small group of people that would remain today if they remain at all. But the one thing that you have to say is that there is not a better place on the planet to be of African descent today 
than the United States of America. So I don't know that you can draw a line to, well, our history has destroyed our future or our present. And, and that's more, to me, we need to talk about what's going on today. Slavery, the Civil War, all those things, they happened, and they're over. And we're not fighting them anymore. And what we just need to say is, what can we do today to make the playing field more even for everyone? Not a group of people here or a group of people there. And not, well, what do we do to overcome some historical wrong? Because then all you do is create a present wrong. And the question I, to debate is, can is there a law, a regulation, a statute on the books that permanently and definitely disadvantages any group of people in the United States? And if there is, we should work to fix it. If there's not, then we have to be willing to admit it. Well, explain. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's take a break. We'll be back on the other side. 843-661-0937, Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent John Decker is with us. The reason we mentioned Great Television, they own WMBF, the NBC affiliate in Myrtle Beach, as well as WIS, the NBC affiliate in Columbia, South Carolina, hopefully this Saturday home of the Fighting Gamecocks. Not so fighting this past weekend, but hopefully there'll be more fighting or more of the fighting spirit this coming weekend uh, than the other. Good morning, John. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Hope you're doing well today. Just got back from New York City late last night. I was up there for President Biden, uh, his speech at the United Nations. Of course, he devoted a big chunk of that speech to Russia. And that speech that President Putin made yesterday to the people of Russia, in which he threatened the use of nuclear weapons uh, in Ukraine and also announced the call up of 300,000 reservists, mobilizing those reservists for the war in Ukraine. John, we heard the mention of anytime Putin says nuclear, the world listens, the world pays attention. Um, What are we as a, I don't know, a global community to make of um, the position Putin finds himself in, not enjoying the success he expected in Ukraine, and then he utters the word, um, you know, nuclear arms? Well, it's a scary thought, obviously. And President Biden yesterday in his speech uh, called out Putin by name. Uh, he said it's just irresponsible for a nuclear superpower to threaten the use of nuclear weapons, number one, and especially uh, when you consider that Russia is a member of the U.N. Security Council. They uh, have to be more responsible as it relates to uh, their place in the world. Uh, but we don't see that from Putin. He uh, is, I don't think, a rational actor. And, uh, you know, when he says, I'm not this is not bluster. This is not bluffing. Uh, you have to take him seriously. And, and I think the world does take him seriously when he makes those types of threats. Did the U.N. conclude anything? I mean, I understand the spoken word and I understand the part of giving a speech is to position the nation's sure. foreign policy. But were, were, was there any action taken? Do we expect any follow up to what the president said yesterday? I don't see any follow up. You know, I mean, the ultimate penalty against Russia would be kicking them off the U.N. Security Council, uh, the five-member Permanent Security Council, uh, President Biden, no one is suggesting that. Um, and, and maybe that ought to be a, a threat, um, you know. But as far as passing any type of tough 
sanctions or passing a resolution at the U.N. Security Council an impossibility, Ken, because, of course, all five permanent members have this veto power. And that's the reason why no sanctions, no type of harsh resolution concerning Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine has come out of the U.N. Security Council since the Russian invasion began back on February the 24th. You mentioned you were in New York City. Yesterday, the news broke the New York State Attorney General Letitia James filed a, I guess, a massive civil suit against former President Donald Trump, included his kids, a lot of business activity in question. Um, Andrew McCarthy today in the National Review says it's political hackery. I got to give the lady credit. I mean, she ran saying that she was going to go after Donald Trump. She is a lady of her word, so to speak. Well, that's right. Uh, You know, there are prosecutions that probably happen all over America, both the state and federal level, uh, that may be influenced by politics. Uh, But the the, the proof is, do you have the goods? You know, that that is ultimately uh, how you are judged. And she believes she has the goods. Remember, this is a civil case, not a criminal case. Criminal case standard of proof, burden of proof is much higher. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. For a civil case, the standard of proof is only preponderance of the evidence. In other words, 51%. If you 51% as a jury believe that uh, the former president and his children are guilty of the crimes that he uh, has been accused of, then you can hold them responsible. Then you can come back with a guilty verdict. But, you know, I, I, we'll have to see how this all plays out. Certainly, it, it does go uh, directly at the president uh, and the former president, his children, when you're going after the future of the Trump organization and whether it can survive uh, this type of civil lawsuit. I mean, banning them essentially from doing additional business in New York State or acquiring additional loans from New York-based banks, that is an ultimate penalty for sure. John, who was damaged in this civil suit? I mean, I'm thinking about the banks, the real estate corporations, the insurance companies, the accounting firms. Nobody has said they had any financial um, damage as a result of this. So when, when James makes this charge, I mean, it's no Bernie Madoff case. I mean, there's no money robbed from somebody that, you know, went to live a luxurious lifestyle. So so as a business guy, when, when I think of crime and criminal activity or, or even civil charges, I start thinking about, OK, who got the bad side of this deal? And I can't find in her writings or her charges where, where she identifies anybody that got the shaft. Well, it's, you raise a good point. Uh, no bank, no uh, financial entity has said that. Uh, They feel wronged by this alleged fraud that was committed on the part of the Trump organization. Uh, That's pretty interesting. You know, I think uh, if you like this analogy, let me make it. You know, uh, that uh, that federal investigation into uh, individuals that tried to get their children into very elite universities all across America. Uh, You know, the question is, who did they defraud? You know, because. The universities still got paid tuition, right, from the people that wanted to get into those universities. But I think what they're saying in that particular case is, who are you defrauding? Well, you're taking away a spot from someone who would be otherwise qualified to go to that university. And I guess you can make the argument in that vein, you know, it's zero sum. Those $250 million in loans that uh, may have been supplied to the Trump organization uh, they could have been supplied to someone else that was perhaps rejected for a loan. I'm just uh, coming up with some sort of uh, concept which would allow uh, the attorney general to make that argument that, that there were 
individuals or entities that were damaged by the former president's behavior. Or it could be political hackery, as Andy McCarthy. <laughs> or, it could be political, or it could be political hackery. Uh, absolutely. But again, it goes back to uh, it could be political hackery. And that does not also mean that she doesn't have the goods on the Trump organization. So we'll have to see how that all plays out. Before I let you get out of here, once again, thank you. Great television, senior national editor, ah, correspondent John Decker is with us. What is the latest, John, on Mar-a-Lago and the uh, the special master appointment? And now the um, it seems to me the center of the debate is the declassification or not of classified material. Well, the latest there is what's happened on the legal side. That's what we need to pay the most attention to, uh, not interviews that are being conducted by the former president. Uh, those don't impact what's happening on the legal side. What happened yesterday, uh, a three-judge panel on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, one judge named to the bench by former President Obama, two judges named to the bench by former President Trump, they all ruled against that federal district court judge in Florida, and they said, the, dis- the Department of Justice should now be able to continue that with their criminal investigation. They should have access to those documents, those classified documents seized at Mar-a-Lago. So this is a loss for uh, the former president. Uh, he can certainly appeal it to the U.S. Supreme Court. I think they're likely going to agree if it is appealed with the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. So that criminal investigation continues. Uh, and, you know, a big question that uh, is never asked of the president on Fox News. Why did you have the documents in the first place a year and a half after you left office? What was the purpose in you having these government documents, these classified documents, even if you declassified? And we'll give you that, Mr. President. Why did you even have them? And no one on Fox News ever asked that very basic question. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend. We will talk next week. I look forward to it. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. John Decker, who is a... um, I mean, it gives a different perspective. And the reason we like, I get aggravated with John at times. So he's the nicest guy in the world, such a good and sincere man. Uh, He corresponds with us uh, on occasion off the record about things that he thinks are going on and need to be paid attention to. But he's a, you know, he's a creature. He's in the the bubble of Washington. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he's, he's there. He's been there a long time. He sees things as they see things. And very often, I think it's interesting for our listeners to have a perspective on you know, um, the the way we see and view certain political issues juxtaposed to the John Deckers of the world, who are good, decent people. Who, who goes into the White House every day. Every single day. I mean, that's his place of, um, of occupation. I mean, I don't think he has an office there, but the press pool has access to, you know, certain pods or, or what am I trying to say here? Uh, cubicles. Yeah. And, um, and that's where Work he space. conducts his business and, and that's where he um, that's where he calls work. So um, I think it's interesting to have, you know, a feeble attempt at radio brigades um, allow for someone who goes to the White House every single day to give a kind of um, a weekly report or inside the Beltway perspective on whatever we're dealing with. But when I read yesterday afternoon some of Letitia, uh, some of this civil case, it just kind of dawned on me. I mean, in, in the Bernie Madoff case, I get it. I mean, you know, uh, Freehold had a million dollars invested with Bernie Madoff, and people he stole his money. Sure, harmed. people were financially devastated as a result of everybody got paid. I mean, the banks got paid. The the accountants got paid. The lawyers got paid. Uh, the real estate companies got paid. The real estate agents got paid. There's been nobody defrauded out of a single dollar in this particular $250 million credit in dispute. And what they're arguing is that Trump inflated 
the the value of an asset to borrow money, deflated the value of the asset uh, to the tax man, so to speak, um, which is kind of common practice in, in that world. Creative business, well, I, mean, I guess. Sure, I mean you know, but 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 the bank has the obligation to vet the loan. I mean, the bank has to make sure. I mean, it has some responsibility. I mean, if Trump goes to the bank and says, "I want to borrow a hundred million dollars and I want to use this as collateral," I mean, the bank, I mean, certainly they don't just take their word on it. I mean, the bank's going to do some sort of appraisal or assessment, I would imagine, and say, "Hey, Donald, it's only worth eighty million, but I tell you what, we can do. I mean, if we can get collateralized another twenty million over, I mean, I don't know how that. I mean, I, I do know how that world works. I've never been that high flyer or that much of a high flyer in those sort of um, business dealings." But, but it's not unusual for a business person to suggest to the bank that the business is worth X, but when the, when the ad valorem taxes are collected, it's only worth, you know, X minus 20%. I mean, that's the, the operations of business. And who's to say what it's worth? I mean, who gets final word? Uh, I'll give you an example. The Mickey Mantle rookie card just sold for two point, what? No, six point. It was, a, it was an outrageous amount of money. Of money. Yeah. I mean, it was a stupid amount of money. But um, I mean, it was twice what the book said it was worth. You know why it was worth twice what the book said it was worth? Because you had a buyer or seller. So, so if a lending institution agrees to loan Donald Trump two hundred fifty million dollars, I mean that's their money. I mean, twelve point six. Okay, twelve point six million. But I think the book value was about half that. Yeah. So, so what is that baseball card worth? I mean, it may be worth six million a year from now, but on that given moment in time, it was worth twelve point. Million. I want to go back to something Larry said a second ago. I like debating Larry, and I think Larry likes debating me. Larry's arguing that Bill Maher's genius is his accepting that the way he sees things aren't always right. See, I think, I think, the, I think there are two things here at play. I think there's arrogance and intelligence. I think really, really smart people know that there's an absolute limit and finite amount of knowledge they have and their ability to understand. I think people who aren't as smart as really intelligent people but have this arrogant streak, they're credentialed, they're educated. You see where I'm headed? Um, I'm not disagreeing with Larry, but I think Bill Maher is a very, very, very bright man. And I think a lot of his willingness to be um, open-minded about some of these other things or more of an example of his high intelligence. In other words, high intelligent people, I think, always question themselves. It's the ones that are, are average intelligence but have this arrogant streak about them or they've got a degree from somewhere. A guy who makes, I mean, a guy who makes, uh, has an IQ of 100 and he makes, you know, 1,200 on the SAT. I mean, he's a little bit above average. Well, let's say 110. He's a little bit above average, but he's not lights out smart. I mean, he's not Peter Thiel. And, and all of a sudden, that guy gets a degree from somewhere. He gets an assignment from somewhere. He gets a honor or award from somewhere. And he believes that he's more entitled to give an informed opinion, he's still the same guy. I mean, his IQ is still the same. He's, he's more educated. He, he's a little more arrogant. He's got these credentials. So all of a sudden, he puts a lot more stock in his opinion than he probably should. The really smart people, I think, understand that there, there are limits to their knowledge. I mean, they, you know, they, 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 I think Mars is a real, real bright man. And I think an example of his, I don't say his brilliance, that's probably an overstatement, the, the, the best example I've, I can give of Marr being above average intelligence is his willingness to say, my side's getting it wrong here, here, and here. Now, now once again, I don't know that I'm right, and, and that's a fairly legitimate debate to have, but I think the real smart people know the limits of their intelligence. The average smart person 
who's been degreed and uh, credentialed and i mean he's a member of um you know the the cathedral he's on all the right things made all the right moves he's on all the right panels and forums he's still the guy with the average iq but society has embraced he as he just believes all the stuff well, I mean, he, he hears he, about he himself. believes all the nonsense i mean he believes this about himself now because the naval academy bestowed an honor on him and the you know the chamber the the, the national chamber of commerce gave him a, uh, some sort of recognition as the you know the entrepreneur of the year or whatever and he starts drinking his own kool-aid and he gets wrapped up in his own mindset and i i just think real smart people are very guarded about not taking themselves that seriously let's take a break we'll be back in two minutes eight four three six six one oh nine three seven do want to make an announcement you know some people negotiate with other people but when you're not a big deal you negotiate directly on your behalf so I am, I love to say my people are negotiated with Kahaley's people to try to get him to agree to come on the show tomorrow at 8.05. Um, but I am personally negotiating with Robert Kahaley personally <laughs> about, I mean, there's no my people reaching out to his people. Uh, we text yesterday a good bit and he's trying to work it out in his schedule. He's real busy right now. I mean, he's incredibly um, occupied doing a lot of other things, not just giving um, talks on the television and radio, but um, polling. I mean, he's trying to do these cross-tab research. Well, and news organizations are quoting Trafalgar polls all over the well, place I can tell you this. I can tell you this, and then we'll move on. He has more to gain or lose in this election cycle than any candidate's name being on the ballot. I mean, I get generic Republican, generic Democrat. Who wins the houses? Who controls the committees? That's a big deal. That's where the power resides. But, but Robert Cahaley of Trafalgar and the polling methodology that he says – is better than anybody else's is on the ballot mm. without question it is on the ballot so his results must be a little different than some of the other polls then well his results are uniquely different than most of the other polls and if he gets it right in 2022 we've been fortunate to have the best pollster in america with us periodically if he gets it wrong um they'll move on to the next whatever it is and whatever methodology comes down the pike but um the national review dan mclaughlin who was one of the senior editors at the National Review, did a big, almost an expose on Robert Cahaley and um, and the methodology he uses to make these determinations that, you know, we'll find out in 47 days whether they're right or wrong. But Robert can't commit to me about tomorrow. But the last text I got from him, he said, hey, let's talk tomorrow, today, and um, and, and kind of circle up and see what, what my schedule is because once again, he's in high demand because he has a controversial methodology that is an outlier from the majority of established, respected, revered pollsters in American politics. Let's go to the phone. Charles in Florence. Good morning, Charles. Morning, guys. I just wanted to give you my first weekly update on when I proclaim myself to be king of the United States. And so far, that movement's kind of moving slow, but I'm working on it. <laughs> but secondly, um, I think with uh, with the Trump, the first thing when that lawsuit was announced that brought to mind what they're looking at is the housing bubble of 2008. Every house in America seemed to be overpriced when they were you know, taking loans out on them. You know, I, it's not exactly the same, but a, as you guys are saying, it's a struggle to see where a, a honest mind could find anything that he did damaging to anybody and that would, you know, be a cause to uh, do what they're trying to do. 
So that's about it. I'll thank, take it off there. Well, thank let me, Charles, you're making, thank you, appreciate the call. You're making a very valid point. I mean, in, in business negotiations, I mean, you're always arguing for your perspective, for your point of view. So if Trump's trying to build a property and he needs $250 million loan to build the property, I mean, he's got to believe it's worth it, right? I mean, he's not borrowing the money to not pay it back. I understand banks write off debt. I mean, I get that, and businesses go south. I mean, nobody's oblivious to any of that. But if Trump goes to the bank and says, hey, I've got this piece of property, I've got this business idea, and I think it'll fly. If I borrow two fifty, here's how I'm paying it back. Not two fifty thousand, two hundred fifty million. Here's how I'm paying it back. I mean, somebody from the lending side of this has to vet it. I mean, somebody at the lending institution has to say, Donald, it won't flow. I mean, there's no way it cash flows there. Um, I'll give an example. Trump convinced banks to finance Atlantic City. The casino he built in Atlantic City was going to do twice the business of the Bellagio to be able to pay the bank back. Is that Trump's fault that he went to the bank and said, I think this casino in Atlantic City can do twice the business as the Bellagio. I mean, in retrospect, it's easy to say, well, that was stupid. I mean, Trump should have known. He believed it. That was his business plan, I guess. Did he believe it or did he not? I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea what he believed or not. But how do you make illegal intent? I mean, how do you you say the, um, you know, Trump defrauded? You don't know what Trump was thinking. Nobody knows what Trump's thinking when he got Barry's $250 million. Now, somebody in the bank... Somebody who gave Trump the money to finance Atlantic City had to say, Donald, there's no way this thing does twice the business of the Bellagio. We can't lend you that much money. What we can lend you this much because we think it'll do one half the business of the Bellagio. Is Trump responsible for having sort of a I mean, is, is, it, is, it, is it against the law? Should it be against the law to pay a very optimistic scenario? To me, it shouldn't be. The, the bank's job is to say, whoa, pump the brakes here. Pump the brakes here. Um, that, that's the, the arrangement. That's the, the back and forth. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. We had one version of the, the story from uh, our great television senior national editor, White House correspondent, John Decker. And I've always said, I have a perspective. I have a view. I have a, a take on things. But it's interesting and I think informative for our audience to hear folks who have other takes on things. That's why we invite these Fox guests. Because they're not rabid, right-wing, you know, crazy radio show hosts. And we have to legitimize ourselves by having people like Tanya Powers, Tanya J. Powers with us. Tanya's in New York. Tanya, good morning. How are you? I'm good. And you just mentioned one of my favorite people, John Decker. Okay. And John's <laughs> been very kind and, uh, and decent to this feeble attempt already, as you, as you have. You're one, of, you're one of our favorite people. And I mean that sincerely, especially when we're debating uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and why anybody other than Keith Richards and Stevie Nicks have been allowed to be uh, members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But we'll save that debate for the next round of elections and nominations. Hey, um, in, in an era where politicians don't do what they say they're going to do, and that's in both parties, there's one who did. Um, New York Attorney General Letitia James said, if given the chance she's going after Donald Trump, she is a lady of her word from New York City. What is your take? What is the reporting on this story, Tanya? Um, the the suit that you're talking about is the uh, suit that New York Attorney General Letitia James filed that we found out about uh, yesterday. It is a civil suit, not a criminal suit. Um, there's a lot of details. I'm going to get into these. Um, and I kind of want to give an overview of what's happening legally with this. 
uh, again, I'm. This is these are the facts. Uh, I'm not a lawyer. You know, you that's that's a John Decker thing from him because he is. Um, the former president is named in this lawsuit as well as the Trump Organization. His three oldest kids, uh, Don Jr., Ivanka, and Eric, are named as defendants as as well as Alan Weisselberg. That's the part that that got my attention. Uh, Alan Weisselberg is the longtime chief financial officer of the Trump Organization. He's been there for decades. And uh, the suit basically says that Trump and the Trump Organization padded the net worth of the company by billions of dollars by manipulating the value of some of the assets. So you're talking about golf courses and hotels and Trump Tower and Mar-a-Lago and things like that. Um, In a nutshell, it seems to be where they're accusing them of uh, inflating the value of these assets when it came to getting loans and deflating them when it came to, you know, tax things like that. You know, if it's not worth as much, you wouldn't be charged as much in taxes and things like things like that. Um, she says her investigation uncovered some potential criminal violations and that those are being referred to federal prosecutors and in the Internal Revenue Service. Again, hers is a civil suit. Um, the reason that it got my attention with the Alan Weisselberg part is kind of goes along with a separate thing that is a a trial that is set to to start next month uh, against the Trump Organization in a criminal case. They're alleging that that the Trump Nation schemed to give uh, perks to senior executives without taxing them. And one of those senior executives was the longtime CFO, Weisselberg, who alone took more than $1.7 million in extras, according to what, you know, this, this case is, what the, what the, you know, alleging is. Now, Weisselberg pleaded guilty in connection to, to this in August. His plea agreement requires him to testify at that trial before he starts his five-month jail sentence. Um, if convicted, the Trump Organization could face, you know, fines of more than double the amount of the unpaid taxes. But that's that's kind of the thing that grabbed my attention with him being, um, you know, mentioned in this is the fact that he's already got a plea agreement in this separate thing going on um, about the, you know, the benefits of senior executives. That's one of the legal issues going on. There are others. There's a parallel criminal investigation that runs alongside the civil one that uh, Letitia James was doing. This criminal one is being done by the Manhattan District Attorney, um, as well as the FBI is continuing to investigate the storage of the sensitive government documents by the former president at Mar-a-Lago. And you've got the special grand jury in Georgia. They're investigating whether the former president uh, attempted to influence state election officials. So there's several different legal, you know, branches of the tree, so to speak. Um, that's kind of an overview of what we're looking at right now, especially as far as this suit goes uh, from the New York Attorney General. So, Tanya, is this the new standard that if a business person inflates the value to the bank, deflates the value to the tax man, so to speak, they're they're in line for civil charges from this AG's office? I mean, I, to me, that's an interesting, I mean, I'm, I'm a business person. I've been in the business world all my life. And that is very, I mean, I don't want to say it's common and it doesn't happen every time, but there's always a give and take, a back and forth, a yin and yang to what the bank says it's worth, what you believe it's worth, what, what the, um, the tax assessor says it's worth. And my fear is all of a sudden this, this becomes the new normal that every business person in New York has to worry about whether or not they've told the bank it's worth something that, that maybe they could substantiate, maybe maybe they can't. That's a dangerous precedent to set 
if you're someone who operates in the private sector and the thing that sticks out in my mind i mean i went back and looked some of the uh, some of the charges the bank has not been defrauded uh, all the accountants have been paid all the investors have been paid i mean nobody's been financially harmed it's not a madoff case nobody has been financially harmed in any of these ordeals but the state's ag still chooses to, to, to charge based on those facts. And I just got to believe there are a lot of business people in New York concerned that this may be the new precedent. Well, I mean, if they're inflating their the value, or if they're manipulating the value of their assets, they probably should be worried. But isn't it the bank's uh, job? I don't want to get you on a back and forth, but I mean, the bank's job is to vet yeah, and appraise and assess what it's worth. It doesn't matter what the, the state of New York says it's worth. I mean, the state of New York has an opinion, but but that deal between the business person and the bank is, is a private sector arrangement. And if the bank is willing to give Donald Trump $250 million, they had to believe he was going to pay it back some way, somehow. Well, the other part of this, I mean, I, I'm, not an, I'm not a financial expert or an attorney, so I really, you know, I don't know about the, the relationship with the bank and the person. However, but if you're, if you're also manipulating the value of your assets to pay less in taxes, that's a problem between you and the government at that point. And that definitely is something that will get you in trouble. And I'm assuming that is the reason that her office has referred the findings of what she found to the federal prosecutors and the IRS. Um, it's not just a matter of, well, the bank said this is what it was worth and it's okay. I'm sure it's fine. That's, I, I can't speak to that. That's not my, that's not my wheelhouse. <laughs> um, I'm just thinking though, if you're, if you're trying to say that your properties are worthless, so you don't have to pay as much in taxes as we've seen that that seems to be the gist of, of, you know, the civil suit, uh, or at least part of it then the IRS is probably going to want a word about that, Yeah. Um, no matter who you are. It's just very interesting. If this is the precedent, there will be a lot of nervous businessmen and women in the state of New York. Thank you, Tanya. Appreciate your time. Mm-hmm. Sure. I don't want to drag her too far down that road, but this is, I mean, this, this is such an interesting debate. What is the property worth? Who deserves to say? Because under the, under the Letitia James model, is your appraisal on your home the same as the assessment. So are you defrauding? I mean, I, I don't get to appraise the home. I don't get to assess the home. I mean, I'm going to right. lobby for a low assessment. I'm going yeah. to high, lobby for a high appraisal. That's what you want. I mean, I'm representing my interests. I mean, right. we all advocate on our behalf, right? I, mean, I, th- you do, I think you I know do. the answer to the question. Well, of course I know the, the answer the, the, the to the question. The caveat here is if those things are true and you're a former president that is potentially going to run for president again and you pose a threat to the cathedral, then yes, that is the standard. Nailed it. Give that man a cigar. That's exactly what it is. I mean, th- th- this is a this is threat and intimidation. I mean, this is simply to get Donald Trump and really and truly all of us. I mean, this is not all about Trump, guys. This is a this is a lesson to be taught to each and every one of us who want to see fundamental, monumental change to the American political system. We believe it's bought and sold. We believe it's rigged. Those who have bought and sold it and rigged it are playing offense. But they're they're showing us via Trump. This is what happens to people when they try to declare themselves a threat to power. Well, speak power to the powerless. Uh, that, that, be careful. Be, be careful right. with that. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm going to speak power to power, speak truth and power to those in power. Be, be careful with that. And I keep thinking about Steve Bannon. I, I just always go back to Bannon. And, and Bannon said three, four years ago, if you believe these people 
are going to give you your country back without a fight, you've got another thing coming. So you're right, Rev. That's exactly what it's about. I'm dancing around the edges because I'm trying to get you folks involved in some way, shape, or form. But, but I'll ask the question again. Look at your tax assessment. Look at your appraisal. And if one is less than the other, somebody's being defrauded. Uh, either the bank has been defrauded or, or the state or county or federal government is being defrauded. Um, what is the property worth? Who gets to declare a value on that property? Is the government the authoritative entity that says, hey, it's only worth X? I mean, I'm arguing it's worth X plus 20%. The bank says it's worth X plus 10%. I mean, we're, we're arguing back and forth. Uh, Donald, we can't loan you $250 million. We can loan you $200 million, but we can't loan you $250. The pro forma doesn't show it can sustain. It can't pay back that amount of debt in your business model. But, but we're really, are we really going to depend on the government to say what something is worth? That the government, by and large, has people who have never operated the private sector. I mean, the people that declare a value or argue, you know, th- this business deal is fraught with, with controversy or, or illegal activity, I mean, they've never dealt in the business world. I mean, th- these are bureaucrats, good, decent people, drive the Sunday school church van, you know, cheer, uh, cheer their kid on at the Little League baseball game. I'm not arguing they aren't good and decent people. I would never argue that. But are we going to trust the government? And once again, it's fairly common activity for a business person to go to the bank and argue that the business is worth, maybe it's an inflated value, maybe it's not. But he believes in it. How do you go to the bank and ask for $250 million if you don't believe in something? And all of a sudden, we're going to defer to the government as the expert to be able to declare exactly what they believe the business is worth. The government has no damn business in the affairs of a business person and his bank. That's between the bank. The bank is going to loan the money. The bank wants to make good loans. The bank vets the project and the borrower. And the bank says, hey, this may be a little bit inflated, but we believe in Donald Trump. I mean, he's always paid his back. He's always figured out a way to manage the affairs. Or when he doesn't pay his back, I mean, I think Trump said to Chris Wallace, these aren't Boy Scouts I'm dealing with. You know, when you borrow money from Goldman Sachs and their investment division or some of the other venture capitalists that I'm sure he's borrowed money from. I mean, it's a cutthroat world. And we're going to defer to the government to declare what it's worth and what it's not and what sort of arrangement the business guy is allowed to make. Let me ask you this. Did, I mean, here's where Trump could have trouble. I mean, and this is where he broke the law. If Donald Trump told an assessor in the state of New York, hey, I'll give you $100,000 if you appraise my hotel at $210 million. It's worth two fifty. But if you'll appraise it at two ten million, well, guess what? Tr- Trump broke the law. But guess who else broke the law? the bureaucrat that took the bribe. Trump can lobby for a low assessment. Nobody's required to give him the low assessment. Somebody in the government has to say, hey, I talked to Donald Trump. I mean, he thinks the business is worth $250 million. I think it's worth 270 I need you to come with me and let's do a more extensive research and analysis to make sure we can get to a fair number. But if Trump pays an assessor X number of dollars to deflate the value of the business, then there's problems there. But he's not the only person in trouble. The assessor's in trouble as well. And I went back and looked at the language of the arrangement. Nobody got defrauded. I mean, the, the accountants have been paid. The lawyers have been paid. The bank has been paid. The $250 million in question, I mean, that, that deal worked kind of the way it was supposed to work. And all of a sudden, the business believes, excuse me, the government believes that they're, you know, they've got to be meddling in the affairs. And that's the fundamental problem I have with the government. Leave. I mean, I'm not saying leave the, let the private sector be. 
I, I would never argue to, to deregulate completely. I'm not an anarchist. I mean, you're going to turn me into one. You're going to leave me with no choice but to become somewhat of an anarchist. I mean, I'm for a limited government empowering the private sector. But, but all of a sudden, the government believes it is the arbiter of truth. You got a bank, you got Trump, and you got the government. Who do you trust more? I mean, I can tell you, I trust Trump at the bank a lot more than I do the state or federal government. Let's go to the bottom. And especially an AG who's on the record, all those videos. I mean, she said well, I mean, this is what she's going to do. You, you, we all know what the story here is. It's political hackery. Right. It's going after a guy who was threatening to the system that has allowed someone like Letitia James to be a statewide elected office and have as much power as she does. He is a legitimate threat for the first time in their lives. They've seen up close and personal what a threat looks like. And they have made a decision in the aggregate to completely destroy anything associated with this political movement. As my daughter said, you better hope you weigh down that list. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So, Ken, is, is the DA going to file civil suits against uh, her own bureaucratic employees uh, who inflate how much work they get done, <laughs> thus defrauding the government? You know, I mean, are the citizens of her uh, district going to sue her for, for the same thing? I, I, I mean, you're opening up a rabbit hole. I, I mean, Ken, who hasn't done what Trump did just on smaller levels? I mean, if you put on the back of the title what you really paid for a car that you then hand over to the DMV, you're a moron. I mean, of course you devalue things when you give it to the government. Um, so, I mean, we're just going to go down a rabbit hole just to go after Trump, thus going after us. So, thank you, Ken. Well, you're setting a scary precedent, though, Jim. I mean, you're allowing that the government to basically declare what something is worth or not. And I would much rather have Trump arguing with a bank. Or for that matter, me arguing with the bank. I've been in business deals, and, and my, my partners and I, we argue with the bank about what it's worth. Can, can the pro forma only, only supports this much debt? Yeah, but let me tell you what we're thinking about, the growth. I mean, nobody knows the answer to this. I mean, that's why there's risk associated with every business deal. But, but I've been in many negotiations with a bank or lending institution about what they're willing to borrow, or excuse me, loan, and what we need to borrow to make it work. I mean, th th those are private sector negotiations and transactions. And the last person I want meddling in that deal is some representative from an assessor's office or the AG's office. I mean, they, they have a reason to, to assess a, uh, an ad valorem tax millage. I mean, they do. They, have, they assess a value. The ad valorem tax millage applies and the taxes are collected accordingly. But, but really, we're going to shift the balance of power from the bank and the business guy to the assessor's office? Yeah, of course we're going to do that because this isn't about Trump. It's about you. It's about me. It's about making sure that no one um, runs for president that's, uh, you know, a, a common man president. So it, if we take that step back, we really know what this is about. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. Hey, on the other side, I'm going to shift gears a good bit. I get a text yesterday afternoon late from a representative I'll leave unnamed at the Florence County Sheriff's Office about an issue, um, 534 grams of heroin, 1,700 doses. The person incarcerated of those charges was let out the same day oh. with a you-won't-believe bond. 
take a break. Whoa. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Let's do uh, right by the caller. Let's go there because I may go off in another direction. <laughs> and our caller's always chasing around trying to figure out where I'm going so they can. And at times, you, you know, we're on a subject or issue. You're calling about that subject or issue. By the time you get on the air, we're, we're, we're 10 miles away from that said issue. So let's be respectful of the caller. You said you, said you might go on to another issue. Well, you might. You might. There's a good chance of that. There's a very good chance of that. <laughs> let's go to the Matt in Florence. Hey, Matt. Hey, guys. Uh, yeah, I, I just don't think anything really is supernatural about what's happening here. It's Donald Trump must be charged and convicted of some sort of crime or a civil suit or something like that. That's all they that's all it is. It doesn't matter. They'll find something, you know, like uh, they'll show me the man. I'll show you the crime sort of thing. I'm sure there's hundreds of, or maybe thousands of Democrat business owners that have done the exact same thing in New York, and they'll never see anything. But it's really like like your last caller said, it's just an attack on us. They're just trying to make sure that we know that we can't elect people like this anymore. It's got to be, you know, somebody that's subservient to government and things like that. Uh, that's that's really all I see this as. Like it, to me, it's not like. Oh, we got him. It's business people doing what they've always done, and because it's Donald Trump, they just have to go after him. It's there's nothing else to it than that. It's not. It, I just don't understand why people are actually taking any of this stuff seriously. Like I don't. Uh, until he ends, until he's convicted of something, I don't care. And even if he is convicted of something, I'll still vote for him again because screw the Democrats. That's the way I feel about it. Thank you, Matthew. You know they could turn Trump into a tragic hero here. And um, I guess that's the uh, a victim. How do you turn Trump into a victim? Well, you go after him like this. I mean, his kids are in the suit. He's in the suit. Uh, he's been sued in, in another place, in another place, in another place. Donald Trump lived a, a lot of his uh, business life in, in litigation. I mean, he's a fly, high-flying business guy in commercial real, real estate. I mean, that, there's a lot of litigation that goes on uh, in that world. Hey, stick with me for a second. Th- this is interesting. Um we're, we're talking about, we, we have a lot of conversation about Magistrates Court and some of the bonds and some of the uh, inconsistencies. So I get a text yesterday from someone at the Florence County Sheriff's Office about them serving an early morning search warrant. I arrested a person, I'll leave unnamed because I'm not in the business of journalism, um, trafficking heroin and weapons charge. I mean, this person was, I think, Johnsonville, um, trafficking heroin and weapons charges. The bonds on trafficking heroin. The bond was set at $10,000. The bond on the weapon charge was $5,000. So a $15,000 bond on someone trafficking in heroin. They were booked at 7.57 a.m. They were released at 4.32 p.m. So someone trafficking heroin in Florence County was apprehended or arrested at about 8 o'clock that morning, released at about 4.30 that afternoon. Now, here I, I said a question. I got a response back. What does the trafficking alone carry? Because I'll get to the numbers here in a second. 4 to 14 grams is 7 to 25 years. Over 14 grams is 40 years. Now, the bond was set by a local magistrate. I don't want to call names. I'll let you folks do the, the investigating you need. Um and I've got pictures here of guns and weapons, and I've got the um, the actual press release from the sheriff's department. But but in essence, um, person was arrested for trafficking heroin. They were uh, released that exact same day on a fifteen thousand dollar bond. So for what fifteen hundred dollars, someone gets released. Now here's the deal. Once again, 
um, four to fourteen grams, seven to twenty-five years. Forty uh, over fourteen grams, forty years. Five hundred and thirty-five grams of cocaine. Excuse me, of heroin. Seventeen hundred doses of heroin. We've often had the debate: When does a drug dealer get treated like a violent criminal? There. I mean, in excess of 40 grams, excuse me, in excess of, uh, yeah, 40 grams is 25 years. Why does someone with 534 grams of heroin get out on a $15 bond? I mean, the absurdity mm. of that. And it's, wow. it's, I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, I'll say it, it happened in Timminsville. I mean, the magistrate in Timminsville is the one to set the bond, $15,000 bond. Somebody's got to explain that, guys, because law enforcement, the sheriff's department in particular, the sheriff's department is busting their ass. They made a commitment. They've they, they've they've committed assets and resources, personnel and and equipment, digital related. I mean, they've done everything they know to do to try and identify these drug hotspots, apprehend these. I mean, I'm gonna call them violent crimes. I mean, how much damage can 534 grams of heroin do in Florence County? 1,700 doses of heroin. And the person that gets apprehended and arrested, I get innocent to proven guilty. But I understand the, the presumption of innocence. I mean, I'm not naive to that. I understand it. I respect it. I adhere to it. I'd like to see our nation abide by that. But it's pretty obvious they're comfortable with their charges. The drugs were in the possession of the person who was apprehended, and a magistrate decided to let that person out the same day on a $15,000 bond. It's an insult to law enforcement. It's a slap in the face to law enforcement. When you are caught with 534 grams of heroin, and you, to me, you give up your liberties and freedoms. I'm not saying you give up your right to be innocent to proven guilty, but there has to be a big asterisk and a big question to be answered. And my heart is for the law enforcement agencies that are dedicated to try. They've accepted, the Sheriff's Department has accepted that we have a, we have a crime problem, a violent crime problem, and a lot of the violence is bred from the, the drug trafficking and the drug trading. So, so they're trying their damnedest to target these, um, these drug dealers and get them off the street. They get a drug dealer off the street, a drug dealer who dealt in 534 grams of, of uh, heroin, and the same day that person's back on the street. What motivation does law enforcement have to do to do their job? We, we've got to demand more of these magistrates. We've got to expect more of these magistrates. We've got to hold these people accountable. I mean, not only does law enforcement have an obligation to keep this community safe, the magistrate has an obligation to incarcerate in a reasonable way people that so egregiously break our laws, and they're not doing it. And something has to change. We, we talk a lot about it. We meet a lot about it. We, we have these blue ribbon panels and committees about it, but we have a substandard sentencing arrangement. And I understand some of the federal guidelines, some of the Senate's leniency. Well, let's address that. Let's exclude South Carolina from some of the federal legislation. Maybe we go to court. Maybe we lose in court. But let's take charge of our legal system and let's get these offenders behind bars where they belong and give law enforcement a chance to effectively do their job and be rewarded as a result of. Let's go to the phone. Here's Will in Florence. Good morning, Will. Hey. All right. So 
not only do we need to hold the magistrates accountable, you also need to hold the lawmakers accountable. Because you can rear in somebody and not be doing the, not, or be doing the speed limit and just never stop, rear in somebody and kill them, and you get, what, a following too close ticket or too fast for conditions ticket for, what, $150, $200? And what was somebody's life worth? Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, it's a little bit off the beaten path, but um, I don't know. We're following too close. Came on with the uh, with the drug possession. We, we've got a problem. We got a violent crime problem in, in Florence. We know we do. We've accepted that we do. Law enforcement has agreed that we have a problem with violent crimes in Florence. The, the the communications I have with law enforcement is that it centers around drugs. I mean, the drug trafficking business leads to violent offenses and violent offenders. The majority of drug deals include what? A gun or two or three or four or five or six. And this is not someone with a bag of weed. This is not live PD. This is not some college kid who forgot to throw the bag of weed out of the out of the car into the truck. I mean, I'm not arguing that. I mean, that's against the law. I get it. But that doesn't lead to violent behavior and violent crimes. 534 grams of heroin is a violent offense. How much damage? How much? How much? Uh, how, many, how much loss of life could happen? with 1,700 doses of heroin. So when someone goes before a magistrate, and the magistrate has the information, this person was apprehended, suspected of having 534 grams of heroin, 1,700 doses of heroin, with with every intent imaginable to distribute that heroin to whoever's got a buck. It doesn't matter. Are you 12 or 13? Doesn't matter. Are you Republican or Democrat? Doesn't matter. You make a lot of money or a little bit? Doesn't matter. The drug problem in Florence County, the drug problem in America, knows no social or, or, or economic bounds. It touches every segment, every fabric of our community. And, and to believe that somebody in charge of setting bond believes it's okay for that person to be back on the street the exact same day they were apprehended, something has to be done about that. Someone has to be held accountable. We can balance the presumption of innocence with the likelihood or not that this person is guilty. I don't have all the data. I don't know all the information. Did the magistrate did? Did the magistrate believe? And here's a good question. Does the magistrate believe this person is guilty of having 534 grams of cocaine? Excuse me, of heroin. If the magistrate believes that that person is guilty of having, with the, with the information they've been uh, allowed to review, with the, with the case they've been given, but the law enforcement does the investigation, makes the arrest. They pass all that information along to the magistrate. The magistrate makes a decision. He's got to balance the presumption of innocence. She's got to balance the presumption of innocence. But, but the magistrate has to take into account whether this person appears to be guilty or not. There has to be some objectivity, so, so, some, some policing to this process. And we've got to have competent magistrates. We gotta have fair-minded magistrates. We we can't lose sight of the presumption of innocence, but we can have a person being suspected—not suspected, but arrested—for uh, for 534 and get out the same day. Does a magistrate ever have to explain a decision like that that seems so uh, non understandable to to the casual to me observer? Just, I mean, you know what I mean? It's an insult to law enforcement, Rev. Right. I mean, if you're out there trying to apprehend these people, I mean, if if, if you've done a sting operation. And, and you've worked on it for a couple of months, and you believe you've identified where a lot of these drugs are coming from. 
you know, you got you got uh, you, you got a heroin overdose and another heroin overdose, and you go to the hospital to interview someone. They'll some some will squeal, some won't. Anyway, there's an extensive um, investigation done, and you say, okay, we believe that a lot of this heroin is coming from Johnsonville, and we believe it's these people who are distributing all of this heroin and destroying all these lives, and and they make the arrest. The person is booked. The person is charged. And on the same day the person is booked and charged, the person is back walking the street. I mean, there's a trial pending. There's a charge still pending. But that person doesn't deserve to be back on the street. Get those drug dealers off the street, incarcerate these people. And look, I understand that their hands are tied to some degree with a 2010 sentence leniency. But let's address that. I mean, let, let's stop talking about it. And let's do something about it because the two people I talked with law enforcement yesterday and the day before, I mean, they're, they're not furious. I mean, they're past furious. That they're, 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 they're just, I mean, they're, they're completely, their morale is so low. Hey, man, we go out and do these things. We've accepted we've got a problem. We're trying to be proactive and aggressive in addressing the problem. And we can't get any cooperation or support from those who are choosing whether to keep those uh, per- perpetrators of crime or criminal activity incarcerated or not and, and we've got to stand with these folks who are some law enforcement agencies aren't doing a good job the florence county sheriff's office in right now under tj joy's leadership is doing a really good job at understanding there's a problem trying to aggressively address the problem but they don't set bond they don't set bail they're at the mercy of the system and we've got to demand that the system do a better job let's take a break we'll be back in a few minutes Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. John in Lamar. Good morning. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, can you talk about these masters? I want you to keep in mind one factor that you don't talk about very often, and that's the human factor. Because and I'm not taking up the masters because I don't I don't think they're quite right myself. But uh, you know, all at the same time, you've got masters just sitting on the bench now that are taking into consideration their political leanings, their friends, their racial biases, all that stuff, you know, and they let people out for nothing, and it doesn't make any sense. I don't know how you weed those people out, but those people, you know, some of those people have just got to go, all right? Thank you. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, people are people. I mean, I've always said you can't check your biases at the door. I mean, you try. I do. You do. We all do, but we can't. I mean, it's impossible. I think Bree said it pretty well a while back when he said we're all racist to some degree i mean we are i mean let's be honest with ourselves we, we all have these these premonitions or predispositions that, that suit the way we see the world the, the one thing we've got to have from magistrates and solicitors and and you know uh prosecutors and defendant defense lawyers is competence 95 percent. i mean i'm making this number up i bet i'm close i know it's over 90 but roughly 95 percent of all um uh all disputes in in some sort of plea bargain why? why why don't we ever go to trial i understand the defendants can avoid the time of defending themselves and you know risk harsher punishment uh the, the, the publicity of trial and and i understand the prosecution saying well we're saving the taxpayer money by not you know spending all this money litigating and and arguing but how many solicitors make plea bargains that aren't in the public's best interest i mean how far can you plea down what will this person who was in possession of 534 grams of heroin eventually to be charged with. I mean, if they're guilty of being in possession of 534 grams of, of heroin, let that be the charge. 
but I'll bet there'll be some sort of solicitor's plea, and it, it'll save a lot of money, and you'll hear that, you know, we don't want to go through all that trouble of, of a trial and, you know, uh, all the publicity that goes along with the trial. No, I mean, if someone breaks the law to that extreme, that's a different, I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking about a bag of weed. I'm not talking about jaywalking. It's a serious offense for someone to have 534 grams of, of heroin to, to be incarcerated that morning and booked out that afternoon. And, and we could follow this person through the system. Um, they'll probably reach some plea bargain and they'll probably be guilty in another couple or three years of another drug offense. I mean, if, there, if, there's, no, if, if there's no reason to not break the law, why not break the law? I mean, if, if I'm going to be if I'm going to be incarcerated for less than a day, I'm going to have a plea made. Out of that, I get, let's say I go to jail 18 months, or let's say 12 months. I don't have any idea what the charges are. I mean, I just read some of the charges, and that's from someone who knows what they're they're talking about. Let's say that I plea down to simple possession or something, and I get 18 months, and I'm back on the street. I mean, do you not believe that person is going to do the same thing again? Of course they yeah, are. No deterrent. I mean, it's, it's, it's 5% of America breaking all the laws. It's not, I mean, 95% of Americans don't break laws. I mean, they do dumb stuff. You know, they, 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 they get themselves in harm's way, but they're not criminals. 5% of Americans are criminals. And we, we've got kind of a, a, you know, kind of a revolving door. They're in and they're out. They're in and they're out. This person will plead to a lesser offense, and in less than 36 months, they'll be charged with heroin again. That's kind of the way we roll. Let's go to the phone. Ashley in Poston's Corner. Hello, Ashley. Uh, good morning, guys. Question for you. Who nominated our magistrate in Florence that's doing all this? This is a Timmonsville magistrate. Florence County, but they're located in Timmonsville. I do know that. Okay. Who, who nominated the judge? Don't know that, Ashley. I'm in the middle of trying to find out. I got this information yesterday, and I've not had enough time to really investigate what needs to be uh, what needs to be found out there. Because I've tried to look at who nominated the the the, the our chief magistrate in Florence County, and 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 I've called several times. She she has been a a large problem of our criminal justice system in Florence County. That person was nominated by a senator who does not live in Florence County. That I understand. I've, I've tried to look it up, but he has constituents in Florence County, and they need to be calling him on the daily. But he's not. Thank you, Ashley. He's got to take a break here. He's not in a position to have to worry about the constituents in Florence County because the majority of his district is in a neighboring county. And this goes back to the change we're trying to, you know, almost demand. Rick and Ball beer tomorrow. Jordan and Lowe, I hope, will be here tomorrow, and we'll kind of explore. Uh, I mean, this is a new case. And, and I mean, I, I spoke to law enforcement yesterday twice. They are extremely frustrated by what happened and what they expect to happen. Back in a minute. Last hour of the morning, 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. A couple of callers are there. Linda and Sumter listening to WDXY this morning. Hello, Linda. Hello. I was in an emergency room in Columbia, and the magistrate should be forced to go there and watch what happens. Every few minutes, the staff is overrun with these overdoses, and it's just like a war zone. They should have to see what's really going on. There's two two things going on: the the dealer and then the person that suffers from their their action. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean we have an epidemic. I mean th- this is not 
this is not a, a kind of a, a minor issue in American uh, health care and politics. This is an epidemic. I mean, I've talked to medical professionals who talk about how many, how much of their assets they have to dedicate to the um, to the treatment of people who have OD'd on heroin. And, and you got fentanyl coming across the border. I asked somebody in law enforcement, I'll leave unnamed yesterday. I said, do we know where this stuff comes from? He said, of course we do. The southern border. I mean, it's all coming across the southern border. And we're doing, and look, guys, this is something I think we all can agree with. I mean, I'm thinking about our liberal friends and, and my more conservative friends and my moderate and pragmatic friends. We've got to address drugs in some matter-of-fact way. And we've got to get dealers off the street. And we got to hold magistrates and solicitors and 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 the system accountable in some way, um, shape, or form. I am a voice. That's all I am. I'm not a member of a, a county council or a city council or a mayor. I'm not the sheriff. I'm not a member of the Senate or the U.S. Um, Congress. I, I'm a I'm a guy with a radio show who tries to beat the drum at times more aggressively than normal because I don't hear anybody else doing it. And when someone is arrested. With four hundred and excuse me, five hundred thirty-four grams of of heroin. I mean, it breaks my heart to begin with because there's a market for five hundred thirty-four grams of heroin. But when the system neglects its responsibility and allows that person to be back on the street that same day with a fifteen thousand dollar bond, somebody has to ask those questions. Somebody has to raise public awareness to these sorts of issues. And, and that's my role. I mean, that's my responsibility. It's not to play favorites with one law enforcement or another or throw a solicitor under the bus or not. It's simply to identify these issues that we have that we're talking a lot about, but nothing's being done in regards to. Meanwhile, the person with 534 grams of heroin slept in their bed last night, just like you did. Mm-hmm. Something's wrong with that, guys, and somebody has to be held responsible and accountable to that malfeasance of justice. Let's go to the phone. And we do have a senator on the line with us right now. Mike Rickenbaugh is listening this morning and has called in to talk about the subject. Hey, Mike. Hey, Senator. How are you, sir? Good morning. Good. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, sir. So you say what about this? I mean, once again, Mike, and I, I respect you for being here on Friday mornings. You've always said the um, the, the most interesting the most interesting thing you do is engage the public. Um, I'm trying to raise public awareness about an issue I think you and I collectively believe we have to address in a more aggressive fashion. So this morning, what do you say about this particular issue? First of all, I'm so grateful that people are paying attention and they're calling in and that you're giving us this mechanism to have this conversation because I know we've talked personally, Ken, about this and myself and Jay and and Philip and and you, but it's we need the public to be aware. I'll take just a second if you'd like to, to answer a couple questions that I heard brought up in terms of how the process works. How do these magistrates um, get selected and, and how could this malfeasance? And I'd agree with you, $15,000. Know, I'm no attorney. I'm not a judge. Never have been. Never plan on being one. That sounds incredibly low. I don't know what the parameters are that that magistrate can choose between. Um, and that's one of the questions or the conversations I had with Sheriff Joe yesterday was, you know, let's look at proposing legislation. I'm happy to champion it to put more rigor into how these bonds are set. Because, again, I'm, I'm no judge. I don't know. But how you can have that much evidence against someone and yet a bond at 15000 is beyond me. So let's change the rules in terms of what those bond limits can be. It should be significantly higher than that, in my personal opinion. But I'm working with Sheriff Joy and his team. Again, our conversation yesterday was let's propose 
and pre-file legislation that makes it much, much more difficult for somebody to get out on bond when you've got that much overwhelming paraphernalia and contraband with you. In terms of the magistrate process, there are four state senators that have a portion of Florence County. I have the largest portion, but Lake City is a senator from Williamsburg County. Timmonsville and Olana is under the district of a senator from Clarendon County. And North Florence, East Florence, and Quimby is in the district of a senator from Marion County. And I do believe that that's a challenge because the 110,000 people per Senate district is the requirement. You brought this up last weekend. If there's 46 state senators in 46 counties, why can't we consider one senator per county? And it's because the, the one person, one vote rule. Obviously, Marion County doesn't have nearly the population as Horry County. So the senator from Marion County has five different portions of five different counties in his district to come up with 110,000 people. Yet Horry County has three senators for one county because of the population. But in answer to the question, the Timmonsville magistrate, as the Atlanta magistrate, are nominated by the senator from Clarendon County because they're in his district. Now, in 2024, Timmonsville and Atlanta come into my district, which is great, but then Lake City is still in Williamsburg County's district, and East Florence and Quimby are in Marion County's district. When the magistrates got nominated, because I didn't know, I don't know them, and I am arguably probably one of the strongest pro-law enforcement from the standpoint of we need to do all we can to protect those that are serving. I've been 20 years sworn. So I want conservative judges that are going to enforce the law and make life difficult on those that break the law, especially the repeat offenders. Yes, they have their rights. Yes, we need to make sure that their rights are protected, but we also need to be as difficult on them as we can when they are repeat offenders in a revolving door turnstile type of system that, as you talked about, will come out again and most likely will do it again with still protecting their rights. So when those judges came through, because I don't know them and I didn't select them, I objected to every one of the Florence County magistrates that came through my desk in my first 11 days because I didn't know them. And I don't know if they're going to be tough on crime, but because there's three other senators, and I'll close with this, there's Rule 51E in the Senate. I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but people have questions and they deserve answers. 51E in the Senate says that if 75% of the Senate of the members of a delegation agree on a magistrate, that magistrate goes through. And because the other three senators who don't reside in Florence County agreed on that magistrate, even though I objected to them, they still went through. Just the rules of the Senate. And we can't change that. But unfortunately, in 2024, there will only be three of us senators in Florence County because Timmonsville and Atlanta come into my district. So then that rule 51 E will no longer be able to be used. Mike, the one thing that I think you would agree with is that you spoke with us, Chef Joy. I spoke with Chef Joy yesterday and a couple of others out of the sheriff's department. They reached out to me because they know we have this crazy radio show and you guys come on and, and we address and have discussions about, about some of these issues. My, my concern is morale. 
I mean, when, when law enforcement sticks their neck on the line and makes a very aggressive arrest and confiscates 534 grams of, uh, of heroin, 1,700 doses of heroin's guns and cash and all these other sorts of things, the person is booked that morning, released that afternoon with a lesser than expected uh, bond or bail, it, it seems to damage the morale. If I'm law enforcement, why am I out there risking my neck when the judicial system, and I'm talking about magistrates and I'm talking about solicitors, are not doing their job, that, that's that's my concern. I mean, I, I can't change what solicitors plea. I can't change what magistrates agree to as a bond. Some of the Senate's leniency of 2010 probably do put some of these magistrates and, and prosecutors in a box, but... But, but law enforcement morale is vital, critical, important. They've admitted there's a crime problem in Florence. They're aggressively pursuing answers, but they kind of get insulted when these sorts of, um, of bonds or bails or pleas are passed along. What, what do we say to the men and women in law enforcement? Ken, I got to tell you, I think that what we owe them is more respect for the risk they're taking. You know, I, I wasn't obviously on that raid yesterday but I have a small dose of that. Five years ago when we had Operation Strike Force here in Florence County, um, I was on the team. We had five, five members of law enforcement picked up a guy on the Interstate 95 with 2,000 oxy pills. And a guy with 2,000 oxy pills in, in his vehicle, a lot of cash, he's got very little to lose. So when you go on something like that and you realize that they got very little to lose and you put your life on the line, and when you go home at night, you're not sure if that's always going to be the routine that you'll get home because people have very little to lose will push the envelope of what they're prepared to do to get out of consequences to their actions. You start questioning, is this really worth it? I'm so proud of the sheriff's deputies and the police officers and the state troopers who put their lives on the line, but we owe them more. That's why I appreciate people calling in. We need to raise a little cane and say, how is this possible? If, it's, if they can really be let out on a $15,000 bond, in a case like this, then let's change the, the rules. Let's just not stand by and, and wring our hands and complain about it. Let's reach out to the legislators like myself and to the sheriff and to the solicitor and say, then change the rules of the game because the rules right now are rigged against those that are putting themselves out there, the law enforcement officers. Mike, thank you a lot for calling in. Uh, I hope to see you tomorrow and we'll continue uh, this discussion. Thank you very much. I appreciate you guys. Take care. Thank you, Senator Mike Rickenbaugh of Florence, but um, not the guy that gets to nominate the magistrate in uh, in Timmonsville, which is in Florence County. It's kind of an unusual way, and I'm familiar with 51E having presided over the South Carolina State Senate. Um, when, when you think about this, I mean, let, let's, be, let's be real people for a moment. I mean, if I'm charged with uh, being in possession of 534 grams of heroin, 1,700 doses of heroin, um, I look at some of the sentencing guidelines. Um, it, it, it's far more likely that I become a fugitive than someone who shows up on time to accept my punishment. Right. I mean, once again, if I'm risking 40 years in jail, why would I ever um, show up to that hearing? I mean, if I get arrested with 534 grams of, of heroin and you let me out that same day, and I'm out of fifteen hundred bucks because I had a fifteen hundred, excuse me, a fifteen thousand dollar bond. What I mean, it makes a lot more sense to for me to be a fugitive, doesn't it? I mean, let's just be honest with one another. I would think so. I mean, if my if my job is trafficking heroin, I mean, I can traffic heroin anyway. That there's a famous line in the Dylan song. 
If you're going to be a crook, you got to live an honest life. That's I mean, think about that for a second. I mean, if, if you're going to be, if you're going to live outside of the law, you got to be honest. It's a little bit like the bank teller. I mean, oh, there's a, a Dylan well, I mean, they, No, but there's an old story of a bank teller. And the bank teller went 13 years without missing a day of work. And one day something happened, a car wreck, and the bank teller couldn't show up to work. And the numbers didn't add up. You know how they kind of, um, they balanced the books at the end of the day. And they found out that the, um, the bank was missing about $600,000. And she'd done it the Johnny Cash way, one piece at a time. You know, a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit. But, but the reason she never missed work is she had to be there to reconcile in her own way what was irreconcilable. I mean, the numbers couldn't reconcile unless she reconciled the numbers. Oh. So she was um, living inside. She's a dishonest person, but, but having to live an honest life coming to work every day, doing her job every day to the best of her ability, except at five o'clock when they kind of, you know, straightened every, or uh, as we say in the country, when the squaring up took place. <laughs> she, she wasn't really squaring my, it my, up. My, my kids will laugh at me. They'll say, are we ready to leave yet? When they were younger, in particular, we'd be the restaurant. And and my kids will say, I'm ready to leave. Are we ready to leave? I said, we haven't squared up yet. You know, <laughs> let's, let's square up and then we'll get out of here. But, but I mean, the, the point is, uh, if, if, I'm, if I'm let out of jail, and there's a pending charge, 534 grams of, of heroin. I mean, it's a little bit like Leonard Skinner. You know, give me two steps. We'll see me no more. Uh, but because once again, I'm not living a reputable life. I'm dealing drugs. Why can't I deal drugs in Hoboken? Why can't I deal drugs in Texarkana? I would like to know the motivation for the magistrate. If we have these things that don't make sense to, to somebody like me, who's not a judge, who's not a lawyer, but just as a citizen who's interested in our communities being as safe as they can be, I would like to know from a magistrate judge, what is the motivation to be that lenient on this type of case? I don't have any idea. Do, do we, do we have answered. the right to ask that question of a magistrate? I would hope so. I mean, sh should a magistrate be required? It's a little bit like, remember when, um, and I'm going back to a football analogy, remember when Spurrier's was at South Carolina and the defensive backs got lit up one game. It might have been Texas A&M on a Thursday night. I mean, they just got lit up. I mean, they looked like they had no clue. You know what Spurrier did? I mean, the first two questions were about the no secondary. Telling. So he told um, Steve Fink, hey, go get the coach. I mean, bring him in here. They want to know all about the side. I don't coach secondary. <laughs> you don't remember that? No, yeah, I mean, he, Spurrier basically sent four, the assistant coach, to come answer the questions about why does your secondary suck? So, so do should magistrates be responsible for addressing the public and answering the questions? Uh, in other words, should there be an opinion issued as to why this person set a fifteen thousand dollar bond? There may be a perfect explanation. Or the public, or a senator, or somebody. Sure. I mean, you know, but but the, should the magistrate? I mean, the Supreme Court issues a dissent and uh, an opinion, right? I mean, the, the, you know, uh, Scalia. Scalia. He was famous for writing the most colorful and flamboyant opinions ever. But when a magistrate passes down a sentence when they issue a bond is that something the public should be allowed to review in other words why did you when you issue this fifteen thousand dollar bond for 534 grams of cocaine why did you do it and the media should be able to go to a site or a, uh, a you know an epicenter kind of a grand central station of um of magistrate's opinions and let them explain what mm -hmm. well, guideline X or guideline Y or, you know, or flight to risk or risk to flight. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I mean, mean it, court proceedings are public, right? Sure. They're no, doing no question our about business. It. But, but when someone, once again, the $15,000 bond, 
when, when someone says that's fair, what are they basing it on, right. and how much does the public have a right to know and understand? I'd like to know. Let's go to the phone. Bobby in Hartsville is our next caller. Hi, Bobby. Hey, guys. Um, you know, whatever happened to common sense? You know, it just seems like to me that a lot of this, a lot of stuff could be solved if we would just get back to using common sense. But anyway, um, I wanted to to announce, if, if I could, about the uh, Pine Ridge uh, Firemen's Association. They're having uh, a car show. Saturday from nine to three, and it's over at the uh, Clyde Church of God in uh, Pine Ridge. If you don't know where Pine Ridge is, it's it's like smack in the middle between Hartsville and McBee. But uh, anybody in that area, I'd love to see you out there, support them, uh, trying to raise money for the volunteer fire department. Thank you, Bobby. You appreciate that. Bobby asked for permission to do it, and then he did it. He didn't. <laughs> I kind of like that. You still there, Bobby? Okay, as a Dodger fan, would you rather have the Mets or the Braves for the NLCS? Well, you know what? The with the Braves, the Braves last year, I think they whipped us. I, I kind of would like uh, to to a rematch on that. Some revenge. Scare me. I think, yeah, some revenge. But I believe the Braves scare me more than the Mets do. But now, uh, the last time the Dodgers played the Mets, I think did they not lose two out of three? They did. I can't remember. They did. And they, they went to New York. And I know there's a lot that goes on in L.A., but I just got a feeling maybe them boys got, got up in New York and, and partied a little bit too much over those <laughs> yeah. few days. So I don't, I don't like the thought of that. But, yeah, I think I would love, uh, love to play the Braves again. Good deal. Thank you, Bobby. Appreciate it. Good luck with the golf tournament. Um, and uh, we shall see whether it's the Mets or, or the Braves uh yeah the, i like somebody calls in and says can, can i can i promote something and then without yeah just yeah, go ahead and do, do it, it my man <laughs> that, that's the um that's the intimacy and friendliness that we built exactly. with our um ever expanding eh, maybe expanding audience hey reminder tomorrow in the nine o'clock hour it's a no politics decompression end of the week hour um i got one reason to be optimistic the gamecocks ain't playing georgia <laughs> there's that (laughs) there's one reason to believe that my weekend may be a little better than the last take a break back in just a minute 843-661-0937 only dylan could say to live outside the law you must be an honest man (laughs) square that up (laughs) well uh, the 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 dylan fans it's dylan it's dylan being squaring that up yeah to live outside well i mean here's like the way you say you ready for y'all to live outside the law you must be an honest man (laughs) right That's, that's how he says it I still want to be a fly on the wall. If Dylan and James Brown meet one another in heaven, (laughs) I want to be a fly on the wall when they talk to one another. Because I think God's going to even say, I I don't even understand what they're saying, but I don't have any idea. I mean, I hear they were big deals on planet Earth. They they got up here and nobody understands what they kind of talk to one another, mumble to one (laughs) another, and nobody really understands what it is they're saying. Let's go to the phone. Tony Calhoun County listening to WTQS. Hi, Tony. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Um, Letitia James has already expressed her desire to be a political person, to get a political office somewhere. So it doesn't matter if her charges stick or don't stick. It's just the fact that she's attacking Trump, gets her political points, checks that little box, you know, in her political run. Um, She's not going after Trump on one particular charge. You know, she's not taking a number 15 scalpel and taking the gallbladder out. She's firing a shotgun um, in each one of those shells, you know, the beads, she's just hoping hits something. 
And whether it hits something or not, she still wins. Um, second point, I mean, you're pushing my buttons this morning all over the place, the drug charges. The, so I had to call in. But anyway, as to slavery, slavery's abhorrent. It's bad. I, I, you know, there's, I mean, as a libertarian, I just, it's, it's not thinkable. But if you stop and consider it, I looked up Google, Google images, and you look up the old slave posters or sale posters and auction posters. Um, slaves back in the 1850s were run about $500. $500 then at $20 an ounce of gold was 25 ounces of gold for a slave. The close of business yesterday, gold sold for $16.75 an ounce. You do the math, 25 times 1675 is $41,875 today. So how many slaves are you going to buy, Ken? I mean, for $41,000. And I remember, they're your property. You have to take care of it like you take care of your car. Um, you've got a big investment in that person. So you're going to take care of your slave as best you can. You're going to have to not just spend the $42,000. You've got to get him a house. You've got to get him clothes. You've got to get him feed. You've got to get him medical care. So it's a really big expense to own a slave. Um, if somebody thinks the numbers are wrong, in Libya, we attacked Muammar Gaddafi. The radical Muslims took over Libya. And today, today, Ken, you can get on an aircraft, fly to Libya, and you can buy a black slave for $45,000. Um, I would go off on the uh, whole lawful versus legal thing on the drug charges later, but that's all I got today. Thank you, Tony. Appreciate that. I tend to, I mean, I, the majority of my take on slavery is, as I tend to be very simple about it, a human being has no right, morally, ethically, or legal now, to own another human being. I mean, it's not black, white, red, green. I mean, I accept that the majority of American slavery was African Americans, and I, I accept that the Civil War was largely about about slavery. But, but I think, and this goes back to the Don Lemon, I'm um, asking the question, or really phrasing a comment in a way that made him look silly. Uh, ill-informed, uh, not knowing what he's talking about. But but I, I I don't even, it doesn't interest me to go that far. It really doesn't. I mean, as, as I try to explore, when the lady says to Don Lemon, um, you know, the, the 20,000, I mean, if we're going to really talk about reparations, let's go back to the beginning of the supply chain. Let, let's go back to where it all began. And, and that would be, by and large, I mean, once again, now you, we can debate whether the, um, the Barbary slave trade predated the Slavic slave trade, predated the Arabic slave trade. We know all of those predated the transatlantic slave trade, but but all slave trading is abhorrent to me, inhumane to me, um, illegitimate to me, because it consists of a human being having the property rights over another human being. And that's, I mean, that I don't need to go a lot further than that. I mean, when, when the argument is based on that premonition, it's absurd. I mean, well, once again, there's a historical story here. And Rick jumped in this morning, a history professor, a teacher. Uh, Dr. Bolt talked a lot about it Tuesday. So there is an, a historical accounting that I think puts things in its proper context. But, but as a, as a, a red-blooded Southern male, the, the most likely suspect to hold out. You know, you know what the world thinks of us. I mean, I'm a white, straight, southern male, and, and I would be the kind of the last holdout. I'd be Josie Wales. I mean, I've not accepted the way things are because I like the way things were. I mean, that's kind of the argument a lot of the left makes about make America great again. 
Of course, those, you know, those, those, those um, bigoted, racist white men want the world to be like it was 40 or 50 years ago. There are a lot of things I like about the world 40 or 50 years ago. There's some things I don't like. But I'd like to believe that no matter what date I was born, I would have been opposed to slavery. Now, now once again, before America, the people that owned slaves were the people that could afford to own slaves. So maybe I'm giving myself more credit than I really deserve. Maybe I would have gone along and said, well, I mean, everybody else is doing it. Kind of the self-justification that we're all guilty of at some point in time. But, but you look at the history of slavery and you look at the American history of slavery and we have a lot to be proud of. That's a weird way to say it. I mean, that's an unbelievably provocative way to say it. But, but we did something and that is accept responsibility for a mistake we made. It doesn't make slave owning any less egregious and inhumane. It doesn't make the reality that that is a part of our nation. It's a part of our history. It will forever be a part of our history. We should all regret that we allowed that to be a part of our history. But, but I think we've done a pretty damn good job of, of, of addressing that stain on America and doing the best we can to make it better. Is, is it perfect? No. Will it ever be perfect? No. But when Don Lemon basically implies that slavery around the world is all about transatlantic slave trade and the American economy became such a preeminent power, but because it was, um, you know, predicated on not paying labor to do a job, that's just, that's not accurate. That's completely and totally inaccurate. It is a part of it. It is a bit of it, but it certainly is not the whole story. The Arabic slave trade lasted 1,300 years somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 50 million people. We had about 300,000 slaves. Um, the, the global slave trade consists of about 100 million people-ish. America was guilty of about 300,000. It didn't make it any less offensive and less egregious and less humane. But, but I think when the lady says to Don Lemon, and what the lady basically says is, I'm not buying your crap. I mean, I'm not going to let you get away with that. It's obvious you don't know what you're talking about. And I think the lady should be um, given a lot of credit for taking him on in that way. And Lemon, I mean, it's obvious Don Lemon didn't know what he was talking about. I mean, he knows what he'd been told about 1619. Uh, you know what I mean? He, he, he probably went to a, a pretty nice university and got an intellectual or academic explanation of what slavery is and how, how bad his country is and how um, he should be ashamed to be a part of a nation that allowed that sort of thing to happen. Every nation on earth, by and large, allowed that sort of thing to happen. And, and once again, Rev, I may be giving myself more credit than I deserve, but my fundamental disposition, and it's not political, it's more of a, um, I don't know, Rev, uh, the, the character core of what I believe in. And, and what I'm willing to kind of, you know, what hill are you willing to die on? I mean, I'm going, I'll die on the hill of a human being not being allowed to own another human being. And I, I don't know how people get there, but, but it was accepted in the world. It was embraced in the world. It was normalized in the world for many, 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 many years. And many, 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 many millions of people were, were caught in that. How much did the era of enlightenment have to do? with kind of the anti-slavery movement. Don't know. Were there different sorts of slave trades? Yes. Were some slaves mistreated more than others? I mean, there, there was castration. There was a lot of gen genital mutilation in, in certain um, parts of slave trade. 
but but the, the point that the lady made to Lemon is stop trying to explain this on a CNN primetime show in a two-minute soundbite by what you heard from a history professor at Cornell. I mean, I'm not letting you get away with that. And she was obviously an expert because she talked about 20,000 British soldiers dying on the high seas doing what? Trying to liberate slaves. Yeah. Trying, to, trying to, I mean, basically take Africans away from fellow Africans who had them in cages on beaches waiting to be sold. Don Lemon didn't like that. But, but the reason he doesn't, the reason he made himself such a, I don't know, put a bullseye on his back is because he has so little historical understanding, true historical understanding of slavery and slave trade. But, I, but I'll reiterate, my position on slavery is and always has been that one human being has no right to own another human being. The closest I can come is a parent. I mean, I don't own my kid. But, but my, my kid's safety and guidance and, and future is entrusted in my hands. I mean, a child doesn't know any better. A parent has to instill in a child certain values and beliefs and, and a systematic way to live uh, his or her life and conduct themselves and all these other sorts of uh, measures and metrics that we've, you know, required of people to have as they operate in a civil society. Um, uh, talking about what, what uh, I've always evaluated what employees cost. But I've never in a million years viewed employees as slaves. I mean, they have a job to do, that they're kind of a captive audience for eight hours a day or nine hours a day, Monday through Friday. I mean, you're kind of nodding your head. You get where I'm headed here. I mean, you know, for you to get paid on Friday, here's what my expectations are. And if you don't do this, we'll have to find somebody else to do that job. That's not slavery. I mean, that's more of a business arrangement and business contract of what expe- expectations are. Um, but, but we act like, or some of us, some of us act like, that, that slavery was so unique to America. No. I mean, once again, 100 million, give or take, slaves in the world. America had 300,000. We fought a war that 600,000 people died in in the name of what? Liberating people from being enslaved. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. So a caller called in and said, I mean, I want to make sure I get this right. I, want, I don't want to misunderstand. Well, well somebody, somebody called our, our business office, actually, and said for you to get your facts straight about where the guy was arrested. That's the quote. But what fact have I gotten wrong? I I'm said he was sure. arrested in Johnsonville. Am I, I wrong? I don't know. I mean, I thought the person was arrested in Johnsonville, South Carolina, That's lower Florence County, a district that I represented on county council. I'm well aware of Johnsonville, but maybe I misspoke at some point in time and said uh, confusing with the magistrate in Timmonsville. I may have said he got it. I don't think I did. I think I said he was arrested in Johnsonville, and a magistrate in Timmonsville is who passed down uh, the bond. Uh, but just you know, Sandy, Sandy came in all upset, and uh, <laughs> at least you're listening close enough yeah. to pay attention. And, to what and we're if, doing. You ha- if you have a correction like that, we, we have a phone line. Call, get on the air, and tell us what we said wrong. Well, I can assure you with that. I mean, if 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 you'll <laughs> be jammed up, if, we, yeah, if we're <laughs> trying to correct everything I'm wrong on it, it it'll be a twenty four seven job for someone. Uh, rest assured, Wayne Mully. Vice President and General Manager General Manager of uh, Community Broadcasters is with us. Yeah, he's the boss. That's right. He is the boss, and um, he f- not frequently joins us, but occasionally joins us to talk about um, these special events that community broadcasters are a part of. Something that Wayne and those have made somewhat of a tradition, an annual event, is the Bridal Showcase. 
Wayne, good morning. How good are you? Good morning. Good morning, guys. And that is this weekend. It's this weekend. This is actually our fifth one here in Florence. It's our fifth time. It's our fifth year. Okay. Why should someone attend the Bridal Showcase? Good question. So uh, five years ago, we started doing this, and every year we have it at the same time, last Sunday of September, and it is the South Carolina Bridal Showcase. It's the largest bridal showcase of its kind in South Carolina. And it's at the Florence Center in Florence, South Carolina. Starts at 1, goes till 5. It's a one-stop shop for all things bridal. We have vendors that have come from every part of the state and other states that will be there. And everything from florists to DJs to wedding officiants to bridal shops to wineries to venues, you name it. Anything that has to do with anything bridal. This is the place where all brides-to-be and their wedding parties should be at this coming Sunday. Okay. If I'm not mistaken, you guys have fun with this as well. I mean, there oh, are a couple do. of events and contests. T- tell us what, if, yeah. if someone is getting married or thinking about getting married, yeah. um, there's some fun and games you guys have as, have in store. So every year, the big draw is the monster cake dive. So we actually have a, uh, uh, a uh, cake baker here in Florence that works with us and makes a 25-foot long cake. And in that cake, with all the icing and the decorations on it, is a small wedding ring. And we get all of these brides that qualify to be a part of the cake dive line up around this cake, and we blow a whistle, and they start diving in it. And the one that finds the ring wins a several-thousand-dollar wedding package. And it's theirs to keep. And it's a lot of fun to watch and see cake flying everywhere and <laughs> people with cake up to their armpits. And they don't care, man. They dive in, and it's a lot of fun. Do people need to pre-order tickets, purchase tickets? I mean, walk me through logistically what Sunday sure. looks like. If someone's just hearing about it, what, what do they need to do now? They can still get tickets online. They can go to scbridalshowcase.com, and uh, they can purchase the tickets right there online. In fact, if you get your tickets before the event, there's a couple dollar savings that you can uh, get from getting them online, or you can get them at the ticket window on Sunday at the Florence Center. And Wayne, this is a team effort. I mean, I've seen you guys scurry around and push hard to make sure we have the right vendors, enough vendors um, for for an event to be successful. Uh, I'm not saying you want to congratulate your team, but it is a team effort. It is a huge team effort, and we'll have people there from – our company from here and from Sumter and other places that'll be there. Two of our, our two MCs are, in fact, two of our on-air personalities on our stations, Jamal Bates, who has the morning show on Almighty, and uh, Lady G, Omichi uh, Grady, who does a uh, show on uh, Old School in Sumter. They are MCs every year and always do a fantastic job. And once again, what time and what day? 1 o'clock till 5 o'clock on this coming Sunday, the 25th, and they can get their tickets or find out vendor info or anything else you want to find out on our all-inclusive website, scbridalshowcase.com, or they can go to Facebook to SC Bridal Showcase. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thank you, guys. Good to see you. Always good to see the boss man, right, Ray? Yes. Any, any yes, brown nose and you want to do uh, while he's in here? Well, no, I mean, he is looking particularly good today. Nice Thank tie. You. I like your tie. Your, your hair sticks nicely. Thank you so much. Re- you Re- sound so great good. on the radio. He is so disgusting. Yes. I mean, he is the most disgusting human being on the planet when it comes to brown nose. New shoes? At least yeah. he knows the difference between Johnsonville and Timminsville. Uh, I hear you. Oh, okay, yeah. Take a shot. Wow. Takes a shot at one of his. Hey, the, you, you told me a long time ago, there's this barrier between the management sales side of radio and the talent. 
mm-hmm. the management sales side don't respect the talent very much. <laughs> yeah. See that, that there's a <laughs> there's a good example of that. Um, in in as fact, well. they like to use the word talent very lightly. Lightly. Yeah. Right? But I mean, I, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget when you guys started calling me. I was like, no, you don't know me. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll assure you, they'll fuck, they'll come up with another another name um, sooner than later. But but these guys do a great job of um, getting outside of the box. I mean, we host radio shows and we have radio stations. But some of the ancillary things these guys do, and it takes a lot of work. I mean, it really and truly takes a, a lot of work by management and the sales team to make these successful. So if you're a woman or a man and you're thinking about getting married or you just got married or, or whatever your marital status may be, know somebody that's thinking about getting married. Make sure you are at the city center this Sunday, 1 to 5. And uh, I'll say this, and it sounds like I'm, you know, sunken up again but i'm not i'm just saying that wayne brought this idea to town and created this five years ago and it really quickly became one of the top bridal events in the entire state uh that we have right here in this area and people come from all over uh to attend it as well and see rev knows me well enough i I can say this and wayne knows this about me i'm the guy that says ain't nobody going to that (laughs) it doesn't matter what it is i mean i'm always the guy i've been to every one of a lot of people and and they have a big time and we uh, we wish you well so if you're out there thinking about getting married man woman family of a a member um it's well worth your time to show up this Sunday, one to five, the city center, the, the bridal, yeah, the Florence Center, the bridal showcase. Enjoy your day.